This is the annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway. It, uh, it doesn't uh, look like an annual meeting. It doesn't feel exactly like an annual meeting. And it particularly doesn't feel like an annual meeting because uh, my partner of 60 years, Charlie Munger, is not sitting up here. And uh, I think most of the people who come to our meeting really come to listen to Charlie. But I, I want to assure you, Charlie at 96, is in fine shape. He, uh, he's, his mind is as good as ever, his voice is as strong as ever, but it just didn't seem like a good idea to have him uh, make the trip uh, to Omaha for this uh, meeting. Uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie is uh, really taking to this new life. He's, uh, he's added Zoom to his repertoire. Uh, so he has uh, meetings every day with various people, and he's just skipped right by me technologically, but uh, that really isn't such a huge achievement. It's more like, you know, kind of like stepping over a peanut or something. But nevertheless, <laughs> I want you to assure you, Charlie is in fine shape, and he'll be back next year, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to have everything in the show that we normally have next year. Uh, Ajit Jain also, who is the, who's the vice chairman in charge of insurance, is safely in New York, and uh, again, it just did not seem worthwhile for him to travel to Omaha for this meeting. Uh, but on my left, we do have Greg Abel, and Greg is the vice chairman in charge of all operations uh, except insurance. So Greg, Greg manages a business that has more than 150 billion in revenues, and crosses across dozens of industries and has more than 300,000 uh, employees. And uh, he's been at that job a couple of years and frankly, I don't know what I'd be doing today if I didn't have Ajit and Greg uh, handling the duties that uh, I was doing only about a quarter as well a couple of years ago. So I owe a lot of thanks to Greg and, and you'll get exposed to him more as this meeting goes along. Uh, the meeting will be divided into four parts in, in, in a moment or two. Uh, I, will, uh, I will talk uh, uh, sort of a monologue with slides. I've never really used slides before. I've, I've, I've taught college uh, classes intermittently, but pretty steadily from age 21 to age 88, and I never recall using a single slide, but, uh, uh, you know, who says you can't teach an old dog new tricks? So <laughs> we'll, we'll see whether you can or not. Uh, and I've got a number of slides, and I would uh, like you to take you through those in the first section, uh, which will start in just a minute. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, we'll... Uh, move on to uh, uh, the, a brief recap of Berkshire's first quarter re results. Now, we put those up in the 10Q, which was posted on the internet on BerkshireHathaway.com this morning, and, and there's lots and lots of detail in there, so I'm not going to go through that. I'll just have, I'll point out one or two things that may be of interest to you, and, and actually I'll talk a little bit about what we did in April, which uh, is something that uh, 
is new to Berkshire to uh, be that current, but uh, I'll give you that. Then we'll have the, um, the formal meeting, uh, which will take maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And from there, we'll go to Becky Quick, who for a couple of hours will uh, grill me and, and Greg on uh, questions she's selected from a huge batch that I'm told she's received. They went to Carol Loomis and Andrew Ross Sorkin, as well as to Becky, but to simplify things, we've consolidated all those questions that uh, uh, Becky will ask. And uh, uh, like I say, we'll go for a couple of hours and, and there's no specified cutoff time. Uh, uh, at present, we'll just see how, how things develop. Uh, now what's, of course, on everybody's mind the last uh, two months or so uh, is, you know, what, uh, what's going to be the situation on, in terms of health in the United States and what's going to be the situation in terms of the economy in the United States in the months and perhaps the years to come. And uh, I don't really have anything to add to your knowledge on health. Uh, uh, I, uh, in school, I, I did okay in accounting, but I was a disaster in biology. And uh, uh, I, I'm learning about uh, these various matters the same way you are. And I think, uh, uh, personally, I, I feel extraordinarily good about being able to listen to Dr. Fauci, who I'd never heard of a year ago, but I think we're very, very fortunate as a country to have somebody at 79 years of age who appears to be able to work 24 hours a day and keep a good humor about him and communicate in a, in a very, very uh, straightforward manner about fairly complex subjects and tell you when he knows something and when he doesn't know something. So I, uh, I'm not going to uh, talk about any political figures at all or, or politics generally uh, this afternoon, but uh, I do feel that, uh, that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dr. Fauci for educating and informing me, uh, actually along with my friend Bill Gates too. Uh, as to what's going on, and I know I get it, uh, I get it from a straight shooter when I get it from either one of, of those. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Fauci. Uh, uh, the, when this hit us, and as I sit here in this auditorium with 17 or 18,000 empty seats, um, the last time I was here, it was absolutely packed. Uh, Creighton was playing Villanova and there were 17 or 18,000, whatever it holds, it was full. And there wasn't one person in that crowd, this was in January, there wasn't one person in that crowd that didn't think that, uh, that March Madness wasn't going to occur. I mean, it, uh, it's been a flip of the switch in a huge way in terms of national behavior, uh, the national psyche. It's, uh, it's dramatic. And when we started on this journey, which we didn't ask for, 
uh, it seemed to me that it was an extraordinary wide variety of possibilities on both the the uh, health side and on the economic side. I mean, it was, you know, there was DEFCON 5 on one side and DEFCON 1 on the other side, and, and nobody really knows, of course, all the possibilities that there are, and they don't know what probability factor to stick on them. But in this particular situation, it, it did seem to me that, that there was an extraordinary range of things that could happen on the health side and an extraordinary range in terms of the economy. And, and of course, they intersect and affect each other, so they're, they're bouncing off each other uh, as you go along. Uh, and I would say, again, I don't, I don't know anything you don't know about health matters. Uh, but I do think the range of possibilities has narrowed down Someone in that respect. We know we're not getting a best case, and, and we're, we know we're not getting a worst case. Uh, uh, the, the possibility initially uh, of the virus was hard to evaluate, and it's so hard to evaluate. There's a lot of things we've learned about it, and a lot of things we know we don't know, but at least we know what we don't know, and, and some very smart people are working on it, and we're learning as we go along. But uh, the virus obviously has been very transmissible, and it's, but on the good side, and it, it's not, not that good, but it is not as lethal as it might have been. We had a, we had a Spanish flu in 1918, and my dad and four siblings and his parents went through it, and they have a terrific story in the March 15th edition of the Omaha World Herald that you can go to omaha.com and look up. It's also on the first page, I believe, on Google if you put in Spanish flu Omaha. And during that particular time, uh, in maybe four months or so, uh, Omaha had 900 and 74, I believe, deaths. And that was a half of 1% of the population. Uh, and that figure wasn't greatly different than around uh, the country. So if you think of a half of 1% of the population now, you're talking a million, seven or thereabouts people. And unfortunately, in terms of the worst case, this does not appear to... Uh, uh, in fact, I think you can almost rule it out it being as lethal as the Spanish flu was. But uh, it's very, very transmissible. And, of course, we have the problem. We don't know the denominator in terms of exactly how, how lethal it is because we don't know how many people have had it and didn't know they had it. Uh, but in any event, the, the range of probabilities on health have narrowed down somewhat. I would say the range of probabilities or possibilities and uh, on the economic side are still extraordinarily wide. You know, we do not know exactly what happens when you voluntarily 
shut down a substantial portion of your society. Uh, in, in 2008 and 9, uh, our economic train uh, went off the tracks. Uh, and there were some reasons why the roadbed was weak in terms of the banks and all of that sort of thing. But the train went. Uh, this time, we just pulled the train off the tracks and put it on a siding. And uh, I don't really know of any parallel uh, of a, in terms of a very, very, well, the most important country in the world, uh, most productive, uh, huge population, uh, in effect, sidelining its economy and its workforce and uh, obviously and unavoidably creating uh, a huge amount of anxiety and changing people's psyche and causing them to somewhat lose their bearings in some many cases, understandably. Uh, this is quite an experiment and we may uh, know the answer to most of the questions reasonably soon, but we may not know the answers uh, to some very important questions for many years. So it still has this enormous range of possibilities. But even facing that, I would like to talk to you about uh, the economic future of the country because I remain convinced as I have. I was convinced of this. Uh, World War II, I was convinced of it. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, 9-11, the financial crisis, that, that uh, uh, nothing could basically stop America. And, and uh, uh, we faced great problems in the past. We haven't faced this exact problem. In fact, we haven't really faced anything that quite resembles this problem. And, uh, but we faced tougher problems, and the American miracle, the American magic, has always prevailed, and it will do so again. And I would, I would like to take you through a little history uh, to essentially make my case that if you were to pick one time to be born, and one place to be born, and you didn't know what your sex was going to be, you didn't know what your intelligence would be, you didn't know what your special talents or special deficiencies would be, that if you could do that one time, you would not pick 1720, you would not pick 1820, you would not pick 1920, you'd pick, to, you'd pick today, and you would pick America. And of course, the interesting thing about it is that Ever since America was organized in 1789, um, when George Washington took the oath of office, uh, people have wanted to come here. Can you imagine that? You know, for, for 231 years, uh, there's always been people that have wanted to come here. Now, uh, my friend, uh, uh, I think has jumped the gun just a shade on putting up slide one, but I'm going to call from some slides as we go along. But the interesting thing about this country is 
what is on slide one? Let's put it up. And, and uh, uh, this is an extraordinarily young country. Now, I'm comparing it to a couple of guys that are pretty old, but, <laughs> but when you think about the fact that my age, Charlie's age, or our life experience, and then we'll throw in this young guy over here, <laughs> Greg Abel, and if our life experiences combined exceed the life of the United States, we are a very, very young country. But what we've accomplished is miraculous. Now, just think of this, this little spot in history. And, and if we'll go to slide two, uh, I've tried to estimate... Uh, well, let's go back and uh, we stay with slide two, but the population in 1790, you know, we had 3.9 million people here. Uh, incidentally, when you look up census figures, you find out that the, they had a big fire in the Department of Commerce building in 1921, so they lost a lot of the census records. So these are not quite as, uh, there's, there's some things where there's a few gaps, but there were 3.9 million people in the United States. And actually, uh, I've got 0.6 million. It's closer to 0.7 million. There were 700,000 of those people were slaves at the time. But those 3.9 million people were one half of 1% of the population of the planet. Uh, and if you'd asked any of those 3.9 million people any of them, to imagine what life would be like 231 years later, even the most optimistic person, and let them, they could have uh, been drinking heavily and even had a little pot of and they still could not in their wildest dreams have thought that in three lifetimes, Charlie's, mine, and Greg's, that in that period, you would be looking at a country with 280 million vehicles shuffling around its roads. Airplanes, maybe not today so much, but they'll be back again. And they were flying people at 40,000 feet, coast to coast in five hours, that great universities would exist in one state after another great hospital systems, and entertainment would be delivered to people in a way nobody could have dreamt of uh, in 1790s. This, this country, in 231 years, has exceeded anybody's dreams. It, uh, uh, I went to the uh, internet, I'm trying to prepare for this, and uh, I uh, tried, if you'll move to the next slide, I tried to uh, uh, find out what was the wealth of the country in 1789, our starting point. And I uh, punched in United States wealth. I tried 1789, I tried 1790. I thought it might be a little easier for the, in terms of a round year. And uh, I think 
four million or so references came up. And I didn't look at all four million. But I can tell you, the data collection in uh, those early days on many, on many fronts uh, was not anything like today. Uh, uh, you really can't, uh, you can't find what I would consider uh, reliable figures. You can, you can find out how many mules there were in the country and a few things like that and add, trying to add them up. But, uh, but in real estate, uh, you know, when you find them, when you're looking at houses or apartment houses or office buildings that, uh, you know, they're, they're each slightly different than each other, but, uh, but they look to comparable sales. So uh, uh, it's hard to find a lot of countries that have been sold uh, uh, where the wealth has been uh, uh, estimated. But it was interesting to go back and think about the fact that in 1803, we purchased for $15 million. Uh, we made the Louisiana purchase. Now, that's a little later than 1789. But, but that's, the, that's the best comp, as they say in real estate. That's the best comp I, we could find for land mass, anyway. And uh, when we purchased, uh, made that purchase, that was equal, incidentally, to about a quarter, about 800,000 plus square miles. But it was about a quarter of what the lower 48 states now contain. So we bought about a quarter of the lower 48 for this $15 million back in 1803. And um, if, you, if you live in Texas, uh, and your grandfather uh, is close to dying, and he calls, he calls the um, grand, grandchildren, children around him. And in his final words, he always says, don't sell the mineral rights. Well, the French sold us the mineral rights on that $15 million deal as well. So we, we got uh, that whole strip there. We got all of Kansas and essentially all of Oklahoma. And they produced 21 billion barrels of oil for us and a lot of natural gas uh, since the purchase. Uh, one of the sidelights is that uh, we paid our 15 million for the Louisiana purchase. We paid 3 million of it, 20% of it. We paid with, with 200,000 ounces of gold, valued at 15 bucks an ounce. And uh, that 3 million that the French took. And uh, we got South Dakota as part of the uh, Louisiana Purchase. And the home state mine up there, uh, before it closed, produced well over 40 million ounces of gold and uh, 40 million ounces of gold and uh, comes to about $60 billion worth. Uh, and uh, uh, like I say, we 200,000 ounces took care of 20% 20, uh, 20 of our purchase price. So the Louisiana Purchase was a bargain, but it's what the going price was for 800,000 square miles, I guess, at the time. And 
uh, three cents an acre. And so I decided by playing around with various numbers such as that, that it, as, a, as a reasonable estimate of the worth of the country, uh, in 1789, a billion was not a crazy figure. Now, if I'd been an academician or something, I would have put a billion, one hundred and seven million, four hundred thousand, or something like that. Or I, it's, uh, I would have made it look respectable. But it's a wild guess. But it's not, uh, uh, it's not a crazy figure. So what has happened? Uh, let's move on to the next slide. To the wealth of the country since then. And here we have some figures that come out pretty regularly. Well, they do come out regularly, where the Federal Reserve uh, estimates the net household worth of people in the United States, all the, all the households in the United States. And you can look these up, and you'll, you'll see that you know, there's 30 trillion of stocks, and, and uh, I think maybe single-family homes, whatever. There's 82 million or so owner-occupied single families and maybe 45 million rental apartments and so on. So you start adding all these up, and uh, the Federal Reserve tells us, and I invite you to look at the, the data. It's kind of interesting that we now, in the United States, 231 years later, we have 100 trillion, we have more than 100 trillion of household wealth, even though the stock market's gone down somewhat uh, uh, since the last quarterly report. Uh, so you say, well, uh, you know, we've had a lot of inflation and everything. Uh, we actually, in the United States, for the first half of our existence, roughly, we didn't really have that much inflation. Uh, we, we had inflationary periods and deflationary periods, but the general price level did not change that dramatically. But I will assume again for this calculation that, that uh, uh, there's been 20 for one inflation. It's, it's way less than that in many commodities, but, but it's, it, and it's very hard to, uh, to measure and talk about equivalent uh, benefits from different kinds of products and so on and costs. But I, I think it's reasonable to say that the United States in real terms uh, has increased in wealth at something in the area of 5,000 for one, which is really, it's mind-blowing, 5,000 for one in real terms in a country that had a half a percent of the and a bunch of raw land, uh, but a vision uh, that uh, to accomplish that in 231 years, uh, uh, there's just no denying that, that, that that's beyond, beyond what anybody could have dreamt earlier. But it was not done, and this is important, because we've now hit a bump in the road. It was not done without some very, very serious bumps in the road. It was not 231 years of steady progress. As a matter of fact, uh, we had been in um, the uh, in this birth of this country. We'd been what into it 70, 
two years, and if we go to the next slide, eighteen sixty one we now had about thirty one million people with the nineteen sixty census showed around thirty one million people or thereabouts uh, in the country, and four million of them were slaves, and we had never really resolved the very much unfinished business of what was involved in in compromises in 1789, and we'll have more to say about that later. But uh, we had something that that uh, not too many countries experienced, and if you told people in 1789 that in, 17, in 72 years you were going to have a division that caused the president of the United States at Gettysburg to to say that uh, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and dedicated can long endure. Imagine the President of the United States wondering aloud whether the country that he was presiding over could long endure only 72 years or 74 years at Gettysburg uh, uh, had taken place. So. While this marvelous dream was being played out, uh, roughly a third of the way through it, we faced this this really moment of decision, and we we entered into a contest that, uh, uh, if we'll go to the next slide, we made an estimate, then literally killed roughly 6% of the males in the country who were between 18 and 60. Uh, I'm assuming that there were more than 600,000 uh, deaths in the war. And uh, I think it's a reasonable estimate that that uh, that 18 to 60 group was males were by far the great proportion. So imagine 6% of your working prime age uh, males in a country are wiped out in four years. So when we look at the progress of this country and we think of our own problems now, uh, I just... Uh, ask you to ponder, and we'll move to the next slide. That would be equivalent today to having four billion males in that same age group similarly wiped out. Uh, uh, so that was one incredible interruption which this country nevertheless uh, worked through while compiling this American dream that is uh, one of the wonders of the world, perhaps the wonder of the world in many senses. So uh, let's move on to the another crisis of a different sort that hit the country. And this, of course, is 
1929 crash, which led to the Great Depression. And um, here, um, the Dow Jones average, which we'll use through this, at that time, that's the one everybody paid attention to. Actually, the second most important average at that time, if you look at the papers, was the New York Times average, which has disappeared. And, of course, the Standard & Poor's has uh, probably regarded this as a superior uh, yardstick. But the Dow Jones is a perfectly adequate yardstick. And on September 3rd, 1929, the Dow Jones average closed at 381.17, and people were very happy, and buying stocks on margin had worked wonderfully in the Roaring Twenties, had a good feeling to it with the auto coming of age and the day of air travel coming along and all kinds of new appliances and the telephone getting wider use, believe it or not, but uh, hadn't really uh, caught on that much. Uh, uh, prior there too, but the movies were coming on. The, the, it was a happy place. And then of course, if we'll move to the next slide, we'll look at what happened in the couple of months after September 3rd. And the Dow Jones average uh, almost got cut in half. And that was pretty impressive until we had this recent situation where in, in a shorter period of time, we lost about a third. But the, the um, uh, the crash, uh, and there's a great book about it called The Great Crash by John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, let me interject one little plug here. Uh, there's a, uh, a small business in Almond. I, I hate what this, what truncating this meeting or changing it so dramatically has done to many of the businesses in Almond because I think small businesses beneficial were the beneficiaries of of a really, um, uh, they got a lot of business for the Berkshire meeting and they're gonna get it in the future, but but they suffered during a period like this. And they just had a story about the bookworm. Well, the bookworm, if you buy any books that come out of the, anything I recommend, uh, think about just putting bookworm, bookworm in Omaha and, and uh, uh, The Great Crash is a wonderful book and John kind of Galbraith describes it. Um, but I would like to get into a, a bit of a personal note, uh, which will have some relevance, not too much, but some relevance uh, to the uh, the story of the Great Depression, because uh, uh, in 1929, my dad, who was 26 years of age then, uh, was employed as a security salesman by a a local small bank, and uh, he sold stocks and bonds, but he mostly sold stocks. And when stocks fall 48%, and you were selling them to people a few months ago, uh, you really don't feel like going out and facing those same people. So I think my dad uh, probably, I like to do as they say now, shelter in place, which means stay at home. And uh, uh, there really wasn't that much in our house. Uh, we, we just had a small yard. It was wintertime anyway. My dad 
wouldn't have been puttering out of the yard anyway. And everybody wasn't, you know, the television wasn't there. And, and, uh, 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 and he and my mother got along very well. So under those conditions, uh, if you'll turn to the next slide, uh, I was uh, born about nine months later. So, at, uh, but at that time, uh, I was actually born on August 30th, but the stock market was closed that day, and so I'm using the previous day's figures. But the, it wasn't, uh, I didn't notice at the time that the market was closed, but the stock market had actually recovered over 20% during that nine and a half month period or thereabouts. Uh, people did not think in the fall of 1930, they did not think they were in the Great, uh, a Great Depression. They thought it was a recession very much like had occurred at least a dozen times, although not always when stock markets were important. But that, we'd had many recessions in the, uh, in the United States over the time, and this did not look like it was something dramatically out of the or ordinary. Uh, uh, but, and for a while, actually for about 10 days after my birth, uh, that view held on, and uh, uh, the stock market actually managed to go up all of 1 or 2% there at, uh, in those 10 days. But that's the last day. Uh, well, from that point, if you'll turn to the next slide, the uh, stock market went from a level of 240 to 41, which was a noticeable decline because uh, if somebody had given me $1,000 on the day I was born and I'd bought stocks with it and bought the Dow average, my $1,000 would have become uh, $170 in in less than two years. And that is something that none of us ever experienced. That uh, uh, We may have had it with one stock occasionally, but, but in terms of uh, having a broad range of America marked down 83% in two years and marked down 89% of the peak was in September 3rd, 1929, uh, was extraordinary. And um, in that intervening period, less than one year after I was born, just slightly less than one year, my dad went to the bank where he worked and had his account. And of course, the bank had a sign on it closed. And uh, so he had no job. And uh, he had two kids at that point. And uh, his father had a grocery store, but uh, Charlie and I both worked for my grandfather. Charlie worked there in 1940. I worked there in 1941, so we didn't know each other. But but my grandfather said to my father that, uh, don't worry about your groceries. Howard, he says, I'll just let your bill run. <laughs> that was, my grandfather was not exactly. Uh, he, he, was, he cared about his family, but he wasn't going to go crazy. Uh, and... Uh, uh, one of the things, as I look back on that period, is, uh, and I don't think the economists generally like to give it that much of a point of importance, but, but 
if we'd had the FDIC 10 years earlier, we, the FDIC started on January 1st, 1934. It was part of the sweeping legislation that took place when Roosevelt came in. But if we'd had the FDIC, uh, we would have had a much, much different experience, I believe, in the, in the Great Depression. People blaming on smooth, smooth holly air. And they, I mean, they, they, uh, there's all kinds of things and, and the margin requirements in 29 and all of those things entered into creating a recession. But if you have over 4,000 banks fail, that's 4,000 local experiences where people save and save and save and put their money away and then someday they reach for it and it's gone. Uh, and that happens, you know, in all 48 states and it happens to your neighbors and it happens to your relatives. Uh, it, it has to have an effect on the psyche that's incredible. So it, uh, one very, very, very good thing that came out of the Depression, in my view, uh, is the FDIC. And uh, uh, it would have been a somewhat different world, I'm sure, if the bank failures hadn't just rolled across this country and, and, uh, and uh, with people that thought that they were savers found out that they had nothing uh, when they went there and there was a sign that said closed. Uh, incidentally, the FDIC, uh, I think very few people know this, but uh, or at least they don't appreciate it, but the FDIC has not cost the American taxpayer a dime. I mean, its expenses have been paid, its losses have been paid all through assessments on banks. It's been a mutual insurance company of the banks backed by the federal government and associated with the federal government. But now it holds $100 billion and that consists of premiums that were paid in and investment income on the premiums, less the expenses and paying of all the losses. And think of the incredible amount of peace of mind that's, got, that's given to people that we're not uh, uh, similarly uh, uh, situated in, in when the Great Depression hit. So the Great Depression went on and um, it lasted a very long time, but it, it lasted a lot longer in the minds of people than it did actually in its effects. World War II came along and on sort of an involuntary manner, we adopted Keynesianism. We started running fiscal deficits, of course, that were absolutely huge and took our debt up to a percentage of GDP, which we've never reached, had never reached before and never have reached since. Uh, so we had an enormous economic recovery, but the minds of people had been so scarred, the memories. Parents told their children, 1929 became a symbol in people's minds. I mean, if you said 1929, 
it was like saying 1776 or 1492. I mean, everybody knew exactly what you were talking about. And it affected stock prices in a rather remarkable way to the point, if you'll change to the next slide, it was January 4th of 1951 that the kid who was born on August 30th in 1930 had finished college before the stock market got back to where it was uh, at that earlier time. So take the years from 1920, 1930, or 1929, really, to 1951, or take the year from my birth, 20 years, and bear in mind that, uh, you know, the country was only 140 years old when this started. That that's 20 years out of a, this amazing 231-year lifetime of our country that uh, was flat out, you know, a time of, for a long time, of no economic growth and no feeling by people in terms about the wealth of the country, the, about what the American economy was worth, what all these corporations that were doing far, far, far better than they were long ago, but it took all of that time to restore uh, in the market a price level uh, that was equal to uh, what it was when I was born 20 years earlier. So uh, if you think about the fact that we're enduring a few months, and we'll endure some many more months, but uh, and we don't know how it comes out. And people in the 30s didn't know how it was going to come out, but they endured, persevered, prospered. And uh, uh, the American miracle uh, continued. But it's interesting in that uh, I actually don't have a slide for the next one because last night I was thinking after all the slides had been prepared, I was actually thinking about this a little later, a little bit, and I remembered that uh, um, in 19, at the start of 1954, the stock market was the Dow was only at about 280, uh, and I remember 1954 because it was the best year I ever had in the stock market, and uh, uh, the Dow went from essentially. Uh, uh, what, two, 280 or thereabouts at the start of the year to a little over 400 at the end of the year. And when it went to 400, as soon as it went across 381, that famous figure from 1929, when it went to 400, uh, this will be hard for some of you to believe, but everybody wondered, is this 1929 all over again? And that seems a little far-fetched because it was a different country in 1954. But that was the common question. And it actually achieved, uh, it, it, it was, you know, it, it achieved such uh, a level of worry 
about whether we were about to jump off another cliff just because the 381 of 1929 had been succeeded, exceeded, that they held Senator Fulbright, Bill Fulbright of Arkansas, who became very famous later in terms of the Foreign Relations Committee, but he headed the Senate Banking Committee. And he called a special, uh, for a special investigation, and he called it the, uh, what do you call it, the stock market study. But it really, as you, if you read through it, he really was questioning whether we had built another house of cards again. And on his committee, it's interesting to see the Senate Finance Committee, uh, one of the members was uh, Prescott Bush, the, uh, the father of George H.W. Bush and grandfather of George W. Bush, uh, uh, and had some illustrious names. And his committee, in March of 1955, with the Dow at 405, assembled 20 of the best minds in the United States to testify as to whether we were going crazy again because the market was at 400, the Dow was at 400, and we'd gotten in this incredible trouble before. But that was the mindset of the country. It's incredible. Uh, we didn't really believe America was what it was. And my boss, the reason I'm familiar with this thousand-page book that I have here, I found it last night uh, in the library, and everything, uh, was that I was working in New York for one of the 20 people that was called down to testify before Senator Fulbright. And he testified right before Bill Martin, who was running the Federal Reserve, testified, and right after General Wood, who was running Sears, uh, testified Sears was very, very important then. And, and Bill Martin, of course, is the fellow that the longest running chairman in the history of the Fed, and he's the one that gave the famous quote about the function of the Fed was to take away the punch balls just when uh, the party started to get really warmed up. Uh, but Ben Graham, my boss, sent me over to the public library in New York and to gather some information for him, something you could do in five minutes with the computer now, and I dug out something, and he went to testify. And uh, on page 545 of this book, I knew where to look. I didn't have to go through it all. But he uh, had a, the quote, which I remember, and I remember because Ben Graham was the one of the three smartest people I've met in my life, and he was the dean of people in securities business. He wrote the classic security analysis book in 1934. He wrote the book that changed my life, The Challenge Investor, in 1949. He was unbelievably smart, and when he testified, the Dow at 404, he had one line in there right toward the start in, in his written testimony, and he said, the stock market is high, it looks high, it is high, but it's not as high as it looks. But he said, it is high. And since that time, if we'll turn to the next slide, of course, we felt the American tailwind at full force, and, and the Dow, well, let's see, we, uh, yeah, when the Dow was, went down Friday, but, it, but when we made the slide, it was about 24,000. So uh, you're looking 
at a market today that has produced $100 for every dollar. All you did was had to believe in America just by a cross-section of America. You didn't, you didn't have to read the Wall Street Journal. You didn't have to look up the price of your stock. You didn't have to pay a lot of money in fees to anybody. You just had to believe that the American miracle was intact. But you'd had this testing period between 1929 and, and uh, well, really, uh, certainly 1954 is indicated by what happened when it got back up to 380. You had this testing period, and uh, uh, people really, they'd lost faith to some degree. They just didn't see the potential of what America could do. And we found that uh, that uh, nothing can stop America when you get right down to it. And uh, it's been true all along. It may have been interrupted uh, with the scariest of scenarios when you had a war with one group of states fighting another group of states. And it may have been tested again in the Great Depression, and it may be tested now to some degree. But in the end, the answer is never bet against America. And uh, uh, that, in my view, is as true today as it was in 1789, and even was true at the during the Civil War and the depths of the Depression. Now, I'm now about to say something that that uh, and don't change the slide yet, but uh, I'm now about to say something that some of you will be tempted to argue with me about, but I would make the case that we are imperfect in a great, great, great many ways, but I would say, and if you'll put up the next slide, that we are now a better country as well as an incredibly more wealthy country than we were in 1789, we're far, far, far from what we should be, will be, but we have gone dramatically in the right direction. Uh, it's interesting, we said in 1776, we said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their are endowed by their creative and with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Uh, and yet, 14 years later, a year after we, we really officially began the country in 1789, adopted a constitution, uh, we found that more than 15% of the people in the country were slaves. And we wrestled with that. But when you say the word self-evident, that sort of sounds like you're saying any damn fool can recognize that. And you certainly say, uh, you can argue maybe a little bit about life and the pursuit of happiness, but I don't see how in the world anybody can reconcile liberty with the idea that that 
15% of the population was enslaved. And it took us a long time to at least partially correct that. That got me took a civil war. It took, it took losing 6% of those people that uh, the males that were between 18 and 60 years of age. Uh, took, but we've moved in the right direction. We've got a long ways to go, but we've moved in the right direction now. In addition, going back again to that 1776 statement that all men are created equal and uh, endowed by their creator, etc. Uh, I think it was self-evident to the 50% uh, of the population that uh, they were getting a fair deal for over half the lifetime of the country. It took 131 years of our country's 231 years, it took 131 years until women were guaranteed the right to vote for our country's leaders. And then what's even more remarkable is that after we adopted the 19th Amendment 1920, it took 61 more years until a woman was allowed to join those eight males on the Supreme Court. I grew up thinking that the Supreme Court, you know, must have been someone said it had to be nine men. But it, it, uh, at 61 years, so it took 192 years before Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the court. And now you can say that, that there was a pipeline problem. You know, half the population may have been women in 1920, but they weren't half the lawyers, or they weren't 10% of the lawyers probably. So you can understand uh, some delay, but uh, 61 years is a long time to go and to pick 33 males in between. If that was entirely by chance, then the odds against that we were flipping coins is about eight billion to one. Now, like I said, there was a pipeline problem, but uh, uh, it took us a long, long time, and it's not done yet. But I think it does give meaning to the fact that we are a better society with a lot of room to go. But we are a better society than existed. Uh, in 1789, we, you know, when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, uh, you know, you have that. I've been there a couple of times. As a matter of fact, I, I watched the uh, uh, the debate between uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Gerald Ford there in the 1976, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it it was not a great time to be black. It was not a great time to be a woman, and uh, both of those categories still have certainly got potential for significant improvement in terms of, of fulfilling that pledge made in 1776 about how we believe that, that it's self-evident that uh, all men were created equal. But 
we have made progress. We are a better society, and we will, as the years go by, uh, if you'll move to the next slide, and uh, uh, I, I believe that, and I think, let's see if I can get these slides in the proper order here. Uh, I believe that when you get through evaluating all of the qualitative facts, what we have done toward meeting the aspirations of what we wrote in 1776. What was we wrote in 1776 wasn't a fact, but it was an aspirational document, and, and we have worked toward those aspirations, and uh, we have a long way to go, but uh, I'll repeat, if you'll move to the next slide, that never, never bet against America. Now, let's move on now to uh, a broad, much broader subject, what I don't know. And I don't know, and perhaps with a bias, I don't believe anybody knows what the market is going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I know America is going to move forward over time, but I don't know for sure. And we learned this on September 10th, 2001, and, and we learned it a few months ago in terms of the virus. Anything can happen in terms of markets. And if you, you can bet on America, but you gotta have to be careful about how you bet. Uh, because uh, simply because markets can do anything on October, whatever it was, in 1987, October 11th, I believe, Monday, you know, markets went down 22% in one day. In 1914, they closed the stock market for about four months. After 9-11, closed the market for four days. We hustled the get it going again, but nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So when you, when you bet, I tell you to bet on America, and I tell you that that's what's really gotten me through ever since I was, bought my first stock when I was 11. I mean, that's, that, I, I caught a huge, huge, huge tailwind in America, but it didn't, wasn't going to blow in, my direction every single day, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And uh, I would like to, in the context of the present news, point out something you may find kind of interesting. Uh, uh, if you go to YouTube, uh, you'll find on June 17th, of 2015, four plus years ago, you'll find Sam Nunn, who's one of the people I admire the most in the United States, in the world, enormous patriot, and tremendous senator, and uh, 
He's carried on thankless work uh, since leaving the Senate, and I'd say heading something called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, which most of you haven't heard of, but but uh, I've been slightly involved in it. Sam unfounded that, and the Nuclear Threat Initiative simply organizations that are devoted to trying to reduce the chances of of something of a nuclear, chemical, biological, and now cyber nature from either malevolent or accidental or whatever it may be from uh, causing deaths to millions of Americans. And, and uh, uh, among the things in Sam co-founded it, and, uh, uh, but he's been the heart and soul of the organization uh, subsequently. And, and they talked about, worried about pandemics among, along with the nuclear threat for decades. And he's participated in war games where they play out various scenarios, including Malevolent, malevolent pandemics that could be started by the same kind of nut that sent the anthrax letters in uh, around 9/11 uh, or a little after. Uh, and Sam paired on this YouTube uh, presentation, and I'm sure he's been on many others. I just happened to look this one up and. Uh, uh, talked about the dangers of a pandemic, and anybody should listen to Sam on any time he talks. So I, uh, he said at that time, germs, germs don't have borders, which we've certainly learned in the last couple of months. And I, uh, when I clicked on YouTube, if you'll go to the next, uh, I found out that it had recently, I, it had 831 views, and this, this was only a few days ago, I looked it up, and uh, maybe, I don't know whether most of those views have just been the last few days because or the last few months, I should say, because of the interest in pandemics. But uh, it is hard to think about things <clears throat> that haven't happened yet. And uh, uh, <clears throat> so we can experience, you know, when, when, when uh, something like the current pandemic happens, uh, uh, it's just, it's hard to factor that in, and that's why you never want to use borrowed money, and at least in my view, in margin to buy into investments. Uh, uh, and we run Berkshire that way. We run it so that we literally try to think of the worst case of not only just one thing going wrong, but other things going wrong at the same time, maybe partly caused by the first, but maybe independent even of the first. And, uh, you know, that you learned in, in, I don't know what grade now, probably earlier than when I went to school, but in fifth or sixth grade that anything, you can have any series of numbers times zero and just need one zero in there and the answer is zero. And, and uh, there's no reason to use borrowed money to participate in the American tailwind, but there's every other reason to participate. now. I can't resist pointing out that in October of 2019, a large 
300 page, got it right here. Uh, book was brought out and Johns Hopkins, one of the most respected institutions in the country, uh, Nuclear Threat Initiative, NTI, and the intelligence group at The Economist collaborated to evaluate the problems of the worldwide preparedness for pandemics, essentially. And I think in November, uh, Sam came out to see me with uh, Ernie Maurice, former Secretary of Energy, who now is the CEO of the of NTI. He and Sam are co-chairman. And Beth Cameron, who did a lot of work on this report, came out to see me. And they gave me, in November, I believe, of last year, they gave me this appraisal. And the opening line, if you'll turn the page, this is the opening line of this 300-page tome. Biological threats, natural, intentional, or accidental, in any country, can pose risk to global health, international security, <clears throat> and the worldwide economy. And this book was prepared in order to evaluate the preparedness of the various countries and rank them. We ranked pretty well, but all of us got a failing, all of the countries got a failing grade, basically. Now, you would think with the prestige of Johns Hopkins and The Economist, along with people like Sam and Ernie, et cetera, that this would have gotten some attention. And again, uh, Sam, we'll turn the next page, Sam and the others went on YouTube on October 24, 2019, and they have racked up, as of a couple of days ago, 1,498 views. Now, my friend Bill Gates was delivering the same warning uh, at a TED talk some years back, and he's gotten a lot more views, but it just says something about the fact that you're going to get bolts from the blue and you can read papers about them and you can, you can talk about what'll happen if some, as they used to, the fellows at Sigma, Solomon used to tell me some 25 Sigma event comes along and they, you know, they say this, that that'll happen once in the, the life of the universe, you know, and then it happens to them a couple of times in a month and they go broke. It, it, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. You know, at least in my view, you know that America's tailwind is not exhausted. You're going to get a fine result if you own equities over a long period of time. And the idea that equities will not produce better results than the 30-year Treasury bond, which yields one and a quarter percent now, it's taxable income. Uh, it's the aim of the Federal Reserve to have 2% a year inflation. Uh, uh, equities are going to outperform that bond. They're going to outperform treasury bills. They're, out, they're going to outperform that money you've stuck under your mattress. I mean, there's, there's, they are a, a enormously sound investment as long as they're an investment. 
and they're not a gambling device or something that uh, you think uh, you can safely, you know, buy on margin or whatever it may be. Uh, it's interesting that stocks offer, which, and stocks are a, we always look at stocks as just being a part of a business. I mean, stocks are a small part of a business. If in 1789 you'd saved a small amount of money and it wasn't easy to save, you might have bought, with those savings, you might have bought a tiny, tiny plot of property. Maybe you bought an, a house that could be rented to somebody, but uh, uh, you didn't really have the chance to buy in with 10 different people who were developing businesses and who were putting, presumably putting their own money in and that would have the American tailwind behind. And, and of the 10, a reasonably high percentage would succeed in a way and earn decent returns. But, but those are the choices you might have had to do with savings. Uh, and they started offering bonds originally, and there again, you got a limited return, but the return may have been, in those days, may have been five or six percent or something of the sort, but you can't, you can't buy risk-free bonds. I mean, the, the yardstick for me is always the, the U.S. Treasury, and, and when somebody offers you quite a bit more than the U.S. Treasury, there's usually a reason that there's, there's more risk. But going back to stocks, people bring the attitude to them too often that because they are liquid and quoted minute by minute, that it's an important that you develop an opinion on them minute by minute. Now, that's really foolish when you think about it. it uh, and that's something Graham taught me in 1949. I mean, that single thought stocks were parts of businesses and not just little things that moved around on charts or charts were very popular in those days and whatever it may be. Imagine for a moment that you decided to invest money now and you bought a farm and the farmland around here, uh, let's say you bought 160 acres and you bought it at X per share or per acre and the farmer next to you had 160 identical acres, same contour, you know, same, same quality of soil quality. So it was, it was identical. And that farmer next door to you uh, was a very peculiar character because every day that farmer with the identical farm said, I'll sell you my farm or I'll buy your farm at a certain price, which he would name. Now, that's a very obliging neighbor. I mean, that's gotta be a plus to have a fellow like that with the next farm. Uh, you don't get that with farms. You get it with stocks. If you want a hundred shares of General Motors you know, on Monday, morning somebody will 
buy your 100 shares or sell you another 100 shares at exactly the same price. And that goes on five days a week. Uh, uh, but just imagine if you had a farmer doing that. When you bought the farm, you looked at what the farm would produce. That was what went through your mind. You were saying to yourself, I'm paying X dollars per acre. I think I'll get so many bushels of corn or soybeans on average. Some years good, some years bad. Some years the price will be good, some years the price will be bad, etc. But you think about the potential of the farm. And now you get this idiot that uh, buys a farm next to you. And, and on top of that, he's sort of a manic depressive and drinks, maybe smokes a little pot. So his numbers just go all over the place. Uh, now, the only thing you have to do is to remember that this guy next door is there to serve you and not to instruct you. You bought the farm because you thought the farm was, uh, had the potential. You don't really need a quote on it. Uh, you know, if you bought in with John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie, and, um, and, uh, there were never any quotes. Well, there were quotes later on, but, but basically uh, you bought into the business. And that's what you're doing when you buy stocks. But you get this added advantage that you do have this neighbor who you're not obliged to listen to at all, who is going to give you a price every day, and he's going to have his ups and downs. And maybe he'll name a selling price that he'll buy at, in which case you sell if you want to. Uh, or maybe he'll name a very low price, and you'll, you'll buy his farm from him. Uh, but you don't have to, and you don't want to put yourself in a position to where, you, where you have to. So stocks have this enormous inherent advantage of people yelling out prices all the time to you. And many people turn that into a disadvantage. And of course, many people can profit in one way or another from telling, telling you that they can tell you what this farmer's gonna yell out tomorrow or next, your neighboring farmer's gonna yell out tomorrow or next week or next month. There's huge money in it. So people, tell you that it's important and they know and that uh, you should pay a lot of attention to their thoughts about what price changes should be or you tell yourself that there should be this great difference but the truth is if you owned the businesses you liked prior to the virus arriving uh, uh, it changes prices and it changes uh, but nobody's forcing you to sell and if you really like the business and you like the management you're in with, and the business hasn't fundamentally changed, and I'll get to that little one, a report on Berkshire, uh, which I will soon, I promise. Uh, the uh, uh, stocks have an enormous advantage, and you still can bet on America, but you can't bet unless you're willing and have an outlook uh, to independently decide that you want to own a cross-section of America, because I don't think most people are in a position to pick single stocks. Uh, uh, a few may be, but, but on balance, I think people are much better off buying a cross-section of America and just forgetting about it. If you'd done that, if I'd done that when I got out of college, it's all I had to do to make 100 for one and then collect dividends on top of it, uh, which increased would increase substantially over time. The American tailwind is marvelous. American business representatives 
and it's going to have interruptions and you're not going to foresee the interruptions and you do not want to get yourself in a position where those interruptions can, can affect you either because you're leveraged or because you're psychologically unable to handle uh, looking at a bunch of numbers. If, if you really had a farm uh, and you had this neighbor and one day he offered you $2,000 an acre and the next day he offers you $1,200 an acre and maybe the day after that he offers you $800 an acre, are you really going to feel that at $2,000 an acre when you had evaluated what the farm would produce, are you going to let this guy drive you into thinking I better sell because his number keeps coming in lower all the time. It, uh, it's a very, very, very important uh, matter to bring the right psychological approach to owning common stocks. But I will tell you, if you uh, bet on America and sustain that position for decades, you're going to do better than, than in my view, far better than owning treasury securities or far better than following people who tell you that what the farmer's going to yell out next. Uh, uh, there's huge amounts of money that, that people pay for advice they really don't need. And for advice where the person giving it can, can be very well-meaning in it and believe their own uh, line. But the truth is that, that you can't have, you can't deliver superior results to everybody by just having them trade around a business. If you bought into uh, a business, it's going to deliver what the business produces. And, and the idea that you can outsmart the person next to you or that the person advising you can outsmart the next, the person sitting next to you is, is uh, well, it's really the wrong approach. So the, uh, find businesses, get a cross section. In my view, for most people, the best thing to do is to own the S&P 500 index fund. People will try and sell you other things because there's more money in it for them if they do. And I'm not saying that that's a conscious uh, act on their part. The most, most good salespeople believe their own baloney. I mean, that's part of being a good salesperson. And uh, I'm sure I've done plenty of that in my life too, but it's, it's very human. If you keep repeating something often, that's why lawyers get, have the witnesses keep saying things over and over again. That uh, by the time they get on the witness stand, they'll they'll uh, they'll believe it, whether it was true in the first place or not. But the the uh, you are dealing with something fundamentally advantageous, in my view, in owning common stocks. I will bet on America the rest of my life, and I hope my successors at Berkshire do it. Now we do it in two different ways. We do it by buying entire businesses and we buy parts of businesses. And I would like to uh, emphasize that, well, I'd like to give you a few figures that uh, will tie in from our uh, activities in the first quarter and also what we've done in April. We are not right about, we do try to pick businesses that we think we understand. We don't buy the S&P 500. But, uh, uh, and we like to buy the entire businesses when we buy them. Uh, but we don't get a chance to do that very often. Most of the best businesses 
are not available for sale in their entirety. Uh, but we don't mind in the least buying partial interests uh, in businesses, and uh, uh, we would rather own six or seven or eight percent you know, of a wonderful company and regard it as a partnership interest essentially in that company uh, and then we get an opportunity to do that through marketable securities and sometimes we get more opportunities than others and with that I hope I've convinced you to uh, to bet on America uh, I'm not saying that this is the right time to buy stocks if you mean by right that they're going to go up instead of down. I don't know what they're going to go in the next day or week or month or year. But I hope I know enough to know. Well, I, I, I think I can buy a cross-section and do fine over 20 or 30 years. And uh, you may think that's kind of for a guy 89 that's taking kind of an optimistic viewpoint. Uh, but uh, uh, I hope that really everybody would buy stocks with the idea that they're buying partnerships and businesses and they wouldn't look at them as chips to move around uh, up or down. At, uh, so uh, we will just now take a quick look. Uh, and I see we've got the Becky's email address. So if you have questions on what I've said or other things, you can email these questions and she's back there probably uh, sort of a madhouse trying to handle questions coming in and pick out the one she's going to prioritize but but feel free to anything I've talked about so far to send along uh, to her and uh, we'll keep her address up when I later hold the uh, formal part of the meeting too very briefly in terms of Berkshire in the first quarter you'll put up we have the slides on that. There we are. It, uh, uh, we, our operating earnings were, and there's much more about this in the 10Q, and it's really not worth spending any real time on, but the operating earnings for the first quarter have no meaning whatsoever in terms of forecasting what's going to happen the next year. It, uh, and I don't know the consequences of shutting down uh, the American economy. I know eventually it will work, whatever we do. Uh, we may make mistakes, we will make mistakes, and I'm not, during this talk, I'm, and later on, I'm not gonna be second guessing people on this because nobody knows for sure what any uh, alternative action would produce or anything sort, but what we do know is that for some period, Certainly during the balance of the year, but it could go on a considerable period of time. Who knows? Uh, but our operating earnings will be less, considerably less, than, than if the virus hadn't come along. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it hurts some of our businesses a lot. I mean, you shut down. Some of our businesses have effectively been shut down. <clears throat> It affects others much less. Our three major businesses of insurance and 
and the BNSF Railroad, Railroad and our energy business, those are our three largest by some margin. Uh, they're in a, in a reasonably decent position. They will they'll spend more than their depreciation. Uh, so some of the earnings will go along with depreciation, will go toward increasing fixed assets. But basically these businesses will produce cash even though their earnings decline somewhat. And, and if we'll go to part two, we virtually we keep ourselves in an extraordinarily uh, strong position. We'll always do that. That's just, that's fundamental. We insure people, we're a specialist to some extent and a leader. Uh, it's not our main business, but we sell structured settlements. That means somebody gets in a terrible accident, usually an auto accident, and uh, they're going to require care for 10, 30, 50 years. And uh, their family or their lawyer is wise enough, in our view, to rather than take some big cash settlement, to essentially arrange to have money paid over the lifetime of the individual to take care of their medical wills, bills or whatever it may be. Uh, and we're... We're a large, we've got many, many, many people that in effect have staked their well-being on the promises of Berkshire to take care of them for like I say, 50 years or longer into the future. And, uh, now I would be, I would never take real chances with money under, of other people's money under any circumstances. That both Charlie and I come from a background where we uh, ran partnerships. Uh, I started mine in 1956 uh, for really seven either actual family members or the equivalent. And Charlie did the same thing six years later. And we never, neither one of us, I think, I know I didn't, I'm virtually certain the same is true of Charlie, neither one of us ever had a single institution investment with us. I mean, every single bit of money we managed for other people was from individuals, people with faces attached to them, uh, uh, or, or entities, uh, or money with faces attached to them. And uh, uh, so we've always felt that our job is basically that of a, a trustee and hopefully a reasonably smart trustee in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. But the, the trustee aspect has been very important. It's, it's true for the people with the structured settlements. It's true for up and down the line, but it's true for the owners very much too. So we always operate from a position of strength. Now, I show on on a um, slide that's up. I show our. Uh, well, let's go back one. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I show our net, our, our cash and treasury bill position on March. 31st. And you might look at that and say, well, you've got 125 billion or so in cash and treasury bills, and you've got, at least at that point, we had about 100 and, I don't know, 180 billion or so in, in equities. And you can say, well, that's a huge position 
have in treasury bills versus uh, just 180 billion in equities. But but we really have far more than that in equities because we own a lot of businesses. We own 100% of the stock of a great many businesses, which to us are very similar to the marketable stocks we own. We just don't own them all. They don't have a quote on them. But we have hundreds of billions of, of wholly owned businesses. So the, our 124 billion is not a not some, uh, you know, 40% or so uh, cash positions is far less than that. And we will always keep plenty of cash on hand. And uh, for any circumstances, if a 9-11 comes along, if the stock market is closed as it was in World War One, it's not going to be. But, you know, I didn't think we were going to be having a pandemic when I watched that Creighton Villanova game in January either. So... Uh, we want to be in a position at Berkshire where, um, well, you remember Blanche Dubois and uh, and a streetcar named Desire. That goes back before many of you, but uh, that, uh, she said she didn't want to. She, that in Blanche's case, she said that, uh, that she depended on the kindness of strangers. And we don't want to be dependent on the kindness of friends even. Uh, because there are times when money almost stops. Uh, and we had one of those, interestingly enough. Uh, we had it, of course, in 2008 and nine. But right around the day or two, leading up to March 23rd, We came very close, but fortunately we had a Federal Reserve that knew what to do. But we, money was uh, investment-grade companies were essentially going to be frozen out of the market. CFOs all over the country had been taught to, you know, to sort of maximize returns on equity capital, so they financed themselves to some extent through commercial paper because that was very cheap and it was backed up by bank lines and all of that. And they, and they, they let the debt create, creep up quite a bit of many companies. And then, of course, they had the hell scared out of them by what was happening uh, in markets, particularly the equity markets. And so they rushed to draw down lines of credit and uh, uh, that surprised people who had extended those lines of credit and they got very nervous and the the capacity of Wall Street to absorb a rush to liquidity that was taking place uh, in mid-March was strained to the limit to the point where the Federal Reserve uh, observing these markets decided they had to move in a very big way. We, we, we got to the point where the U.S. Treasury market, the, the deepest of all markets, got somewhat disorganized. And when that happens, believe me, every bank and CFO in the country knows it, and they react with fear, and fear is the most contagious uh, disease you can imagine. It uh, makes the virus look like a piker. And we came very close to 
having a total freeze uh, of credit to the largest companies in the world who were depending on it. And to the great credit of Jay Powell, I, I, I've always had Paul Volcker up on a special place, special pedestal in terms of Federal Reserve chairmen over the years. We've had a lot of them, very good Fed chairmen, but Paul Volcker, I had him at the top of the list, and I'll recommend another book. He, Paul Volcker died about a year, I don't know, less than maybe a year ago or a little less. But, just, but not much before he died, he wrote a book called Keeping At It. And uh, uh, if you call my friends with the bookworm, I think you'll enjoy reading that book. Paul Volcker was a giant. In many ways, he was a big guy, too. He and Jay Powell uh, couldn't see more in in temperament or anything, uh, but Jay Powell, in my view, and the and the and the, and the Fed board belong up there on that pedestal because uh, with him because uh, they acted in the middle of March, probably somewhat instructed by what they'd seen in 2008 and nine. Uh, uh, they reacted in a huge way, uh, and essentially allowed what's happened since that time to play out the way it has. Uh, March, where the market had essentially frozen, closed a little after mid-month, ended up, because the Fed took these actions on March 23rd, it ended up being the largest month for corporate debt issuance, I believe, in history. And then April followed through and was even a was even with even a larger month. And you saw all kinds of companies grabbing everything, coming to market, and spreads actually narrowed. And and uh, every one of those people that issued bonds in late March and April, I sent a thank you letter to the Fed because it would not have happened if they hadn't operated with really unprecedented speed and determination. Uh, and we'll know the consequences of swelling the Fed's balance sheet. You can, you can look at the Fed's balance sheet. They put it out every Thursday. It's kind of interesting reading if you're sort of a nut like me. Uh, but it's, it's up there on the Internet every Thursday. And you'll, you'll see some extraordinary changes there in the last six or seven weeks. Uh, and like I say, we don't know the consequences of that. And, and nobody does exactly. Uh, and we don't know the consequences of what undoubtedly we'll have to do. But we, we do know the consequences of doing nothing. And that's <clears throat> would have been the tendency of the Fed in many years past, not doing nothing, but doing something inadequate. But Mario Draghi you know, brought the whatever it takes to uh, Europe and, and the Fed then mid-March sort of did whatever it takes squared, and uh, we owe them a huge thank you. But we're prepared at Berkshire. We always prepare on the ad on the basis that maybe the Fed will not have a chairman that acts like that, and we, we really want to be prepared for anything. So that explains some of the $124 billion in cash and bills. We don't need it all. And, uh, but... We do never want to be dependent on the 
not only the kindness of strangers, but the kindness of friends. Now, in the next slide, we have the what we did in inequities, and these numbers are are tiny when you get right down to it. I mean, for, for having 500 billion or so in net worth, and I mean not in net worth, but in, in, in market value at, at the start of the year or something close to that. Uh, you know, our we bought in. 1.7 billion of stock, and our purchases were a couple of billion more than than uh, our sales of equities. But uh, as you saw in the previous slide, we had operating earnings of five, almost six billion, and and uh, uh, so we did very very little in the uh, first quarter. And then I've added another figure, which I wouldn't normally. Uh, present to you, but I want to be sure that if I'm talking to you about investments and stocks more than I usually have, uh, I want you to know what Berkshire's actually doing. Now, you'll see in the month of April that we net sold uh, $6 billion or so of securities, and that's basically, that isn't because we thought the stock market was going to go down or anything of the sort, or because some some somebody changes their target price or they change this year's earnings forecast. Uh, I just decided that I'd made a mistake uh, in evaluating. It was an understandable mistake. It was a probability weighted decision when we bought that we were getting uh, an attractive amount for our money when investing across the airlines business. So we bought roughly 10% of the four largest airlines, and we probably, this doesn't, is not 100% of what we did in April, but, but we probably paid uh, seven or eight billion, somewhere between seven and eight billion, to own 10% of the four large companies in the, in the airline business, and we felt for that, we were getting a billion dollars, roughly, of earnings. Now, it wasn't, weren't getting a billion dollars of dividends, but we felt our share of the underlying earnings was a billion dollars, and we felt that that number was more likely to go up than down over a period of time. That it would be cyclical, obviously, but but it was it was as if we bought the whole company, but we bought it through uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and and we can only effectively buy ten percent, roughly, of the four, and uh, we didn't. We treat it mentally exactly as if we were buying a business, and uh, and it turned out I was wrong about that business because of something that was not in any way the fault of four excellent CEOs. I mean, they, 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 believe me, no joy being a CEO of an airline, but the companies we bought were well managed. They they did a lot of things right. It's a very, very, very difficult business because you're dealing with millions of people every day, and if something goes wrong for 1% of them, they are very unhappy. So I, I don't envy anybody the job of being CEO of an airline, but I particularly don't enjoy them being in a period like this where essentially nobody and people have been told basically not to fly. I've been told not to fly for a while. I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to flying them. 
may not fly commercial, but that's another question. The, uh, but the, the airline business, and I, I may be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I think it, it changed in a very major way, and it's obviously changed in the fact that there, four companies are each going to borrow, you know, perhaps an average of at least. 10 or 12 billion each, well, you have to pay that back out of earnings over some period of time. I mean, you're 10 or 12 billion dollars worse off if that happens. And of course, the, in some cases, they're having to sell stock or sell the right to buy a stock at these prices. Uh, and that takes away from the, the upside down. Uh, and I don't know whether two or three years from now that, that as many people will fly as many passenger miles as as uh, they did last year. They may and they may not, it's, uh, but the future is much less clear to me about uh, how the business will turn out through absolutely no fault of the airlines themselves. That's um, something that was a low probability event happened and it happened to hurt particularly, um, whether it's the travel business, the hotel business, cruise business, theme park business, but the airline business in particular, and of course the airline business has the problem that if if the business comes back 70% or 80%, the aircraft don't disappear. Uh, so you've got, uh, you've got too many planes, and, and uh, no, it didn't look that way when the orders were placed a few months ago and or when arrangements were made. But the world changed for airlines, and I and I wish them well. But it's one of the businesses we have. We have businesses we own directly that are going to be hurt significantly. The virus will cost Berkshire money. It doesn't cost money because our stock and various other businesses moves around. I mean, if uh, X Y Z, which is say is one of our holdings and we, we own it as a business and we like the business. The stock goes down 20 or 30 or 40 percent. We don't feel we're poor in that situation. We felt we were poor in terms of what actually happened to those airline businesses just as if we owned 100 percent of them. So that explains those sales which are relatively minor but I want to make sure that nobody thinks that that, that involves a market prediction. And that pretty well wraps it up for for Berkshire. So now we move into the formal part of the meeting, which will be followed by uh, a fairly extended question and answer period if there are a lot of questions with Becky. And while we're doing this formal part of the meeting, uh, uh, it's not too exciting. Uh, so feel free to uh, uh, leave your uh, whatever, whatever you're viewing this through, and, and uh, if you want to send questions to Becky, we'll keep her her uh, uh, contact information up on the screen. Or if you want to pick yourself a sandwich or do anything else, we will now move. Or you can pay attention to the to the formal part of the meeting. But uh, we will do this and won't take too long, and then we will uh, move on to the question and answer meeting. So with that, 
uh, I will call the meeting to order. And this follows the script, as if you can't tell by what I'm saying. Uh, I'm Warren Buffett, chairman of the board of directors of the company, and I welcome you to this 2020 annual meeting of shareholders. Mark Hamburg is secretary of Berkshire Hathaway, and he will make a written record of the proceedings. Dan Jackson has been appointed inspector of elections at this meeting. He will certify to the count of votes cast in the election for directors and the motions to be voted upon at this meeting. The named proxy holders for this meeting are Walter Scott and Mark Hamburg. Does the secretary have a report of the number of Berkshire shares outstanding entitled to vote and represented at the meeting? Yes, I do. As indicated in the proxy statement that accompanied this note, the notice of this meeting that was sent to all shareholders of record on March 4, 2020, the record date for this meeting, there were 699,123 shares of Class A Berkshire Hathaway common stock outstanding, with each share entitled to one vote on motions considered at the meeting, and 1,382,352,000 370 shares of Class B Berkshire Hathaway common stock outstanding, with each share entitled to one ten thousandth of one vote on motions considered at the meeting. Of that number, 472,037 Class A shares and 803,802,274 Class B shares are represented at this meeting by proxies returned through Thursday evening, April 30th. Uh, thank you. That number represents a quorum, and we will therefore directly proceed with the meeting. First order of business will be a reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders. I recognize Ms. Debbie Bozanik, who will place a motion before the meeting. I move that the reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders be dispensed with and the minutes be approved. Do I hear a second? I second the motion. The motion is carried. The next item of business is to elect directors. I recognize Ms. Debbie Pasonic to place motion before the meeting with respect to election of directors. I move that Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Gregory Abel, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Kenneth Chenault, Susan Decker, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Ajit Jain, Thomas Murphy, Ronald Olson, Walter Scott, and Merrill Whitmer be elected as directors. I second the motion. It has been moved and seconded that Warren Buffett, <clears throat> Charles Munger, Greg Gable, Howard Buffett, Steve Burke, Ken Chenault, Susan Decker, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Ajit Jane, Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, Walter Scott, and Merle Whitner, Whitmer be elected as directors. The nominations are ready to be acted upon. Mr. Jackson, when, when you're ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. <clears throat> the ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast not less than 543,203 votes for each nominee. That number exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Mr. Jaffke. Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Greg Abel, Howard Buffett, Steve Burke, Ken Chenault, Susan Decker, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Jeet Jane, Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, Walter Scott, and Merle Whitmer have been elected as directors. And uh, 
Ken, if you're watching uh, or listening, uh, Ken Chenault, our new director, actually got the highest vote of all the directors, uh, well ahead of me, I might add. Uh, so congratulations, Ken. Uh, the next item on the agenda is an advisory vote, vote on the comp compensation of Berkshire Hathaway's executive officers. I recognize Ms. Debbie Bosonic to place a motion before the meeting on this item. I move that the shareholders of the company approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers as disclosed pursuant to item 402 of regulation SK, including the compensation discussion and analysis, the accompanying compensation tables, and the related narrative discussion in the company's 2020 annual meeting proxy statement. I second the motion. It has been moved and seconded that the shareholders of the company approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers. Mr. Jackson, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast not less than 519,750 votes to approve on an advisory basis the compensation to the company's named executive officers, the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers. That number exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the Secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Mr. Jack. The motion to approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers has passed. The next item on the agenda is an advisory vote on the frequency of a shareholder advisory vote on compensation of Berkshire Hathaway's executive officers. I recognize Ms. Debbie Masonic to place a motion before the meeting on this item. I move that the shareholders of the company determine on an advisory basis the frequency, whether annual, biennial, or triennial, with which they shall have an advisory vote on the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers as set forth in the company's 2020 annual meeting proxy statement. I second the motion. It's been moved and seconded that the shareholders of the company determine the frequency with which they have, they shall have an advisory vote on, vote on compensation of named executive officers with the option being every one, two, or three years. Mr. Jackson, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening casts 131,443 votes for a frequency of every year, 2,228 votes for a frequency of every two years, and 419,984 votes for a frequency of every three years of an advisory vote on the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. The shareholders of the company have determined on an advisory basis that they shall have an advisory vote on the compensation paid to the company's named exec executive officers every three years. Now we're through with sort of the boilerplate Resolutions and this this next item is uh, is of more importance and uh, uh, we have put up it on the BerkshireHathaway.com site um, 
some material relating to this motion, which I hope shareholders and others read because it's it, it's important and it's it's uh, uh, well I'll describe it as the script says the next item of business is a motion put forth by the boards of trustees of the New York City Employees Retirement System, the New York City Teachers Retirement System, the New York City Police Pension Fund, and the New York City Fire Pension Funds collectively called the systems. The motion is set forth in the proxy statement. The motion requests that the company adopt a policy for improving board and top management diversity. The directors have recommended that the shareholders vote against the proposal. Uh, I'd like to interrupt the script here just a second to point out that we, uh, when we saw that it would be impossible to have uh, um, shareholders attend this meeting and tra traveling to Omaha uh, and gathering and gatherings, which really uh, neither the governor, the mayor, or the public safety people uh, thought would be advisable. Uh, we were hoping to have somebody from the uh, controller's office uh, come and present the motion and 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 uh, and and then have a good discussion uh, at the meeting of the pros and cons because it's a very it's a serious important subject and uh, I can tell you on a personal basis I I think I'm in sync with the uh, controller in terms of how he wants the world to evolve, but I'm not, I disagree on the specifics of this motion as applied to uh, board generally and to uh, to Berkshire's board in particular. And we've been very outspoken over the years. We've probably written more on qualifications for directors probably any public company I can think of and we've been consistent over the years and we've explained the reasons for our position and we know a great many people disagree with that position so I I was I welcomed the idea of of really presenting to our meeting and 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 and, and having our shareholders hear what they had to say and 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 evaluate what we had to what our thoughts were and um, when we had to uh, essentially not allow shareholders at the meeting, we immediately got in touch with the controller's office. And we said we'd make an exception uh, if anybody from the controller's office wanted to come out and present the, uh, the proposition or the proposal and, ex and engage in our discussion of the pros and cons. And uh, as you might expect, uh, they were not in a position um, to send somebody, and 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 we also so we offered. We may have made it even in the first place. We'd be glad to have somebody introduce the motion on their behalf, and that we we would um, also, if they would send along a supporting uh, statement, we would be glad to have the uh, person that uh, was their, their proxy in effect uh, present the motion. Uh, we'd be happy to have them re read the supporting statement. Uh, and we said we'd appreciate it if they keep it to five minutes or less. And they wrote back immediately. 
and her email back immediately and said that uh, uh, they'd be delighted to do it that way and they'd even try and keep it down to three minutes. So they have, they have sent a supporting statement, which uh, uh, is going to be read to you in a minute, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad they did it. Uh, I do hope shareholders will or have already uh, and others will read, will listen to what the supporting statement says and will also read the original uh, argument that they made in the proxy uh, for their proposal and they will read our reasons for voting against, uh, the suggest voting against uh, because it's an it's, it's an important topic, and uh, uh, and I really hope that next year uh, that you know if somebody from the controller's office wishes to come out, we'd be glad to have uh, even a more fulsome discussion of the subject. So, with that, I will now recognize Mr. Hamburg to read a statement prepared by the controller of the city of New York in support of the motion. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the board, fellow share owners, I'm Mark Hamburg from Berkshire Hathaway, and I'm here to present Proposal 4 on behalf of the New York City Comptroller, Scott Stringer, and the New York City Pension Funds. The funds have approximately $211 billion in assets as of February, and are substantial long-term Berkshire Hathaway share owners with 2.5 million shares. Our proposal requests that Berkshire Hathaway Board adopt a diversity search policy requiring that the initial candidates from which new director nominees and external CEOs are chosen include qualified female and racially or ethnically diverse candidates. First of all, we would like to commend the directors for the addition of Mr. Kenneth Chenault and the fact that 21% of the board is made up of women. We would also like to recognize that the executive pipeline includes diverse candidates, including Mr. Ajit Jain, another board member. Secondly, we applaud Mr. Buffett's recognition that women in the boardroom have historically been rare, and even more importantly, that although women run, won the right to have their voices heard in a voting booth a century ago, attaining similar status in a boardroom remains a work in progress. With our share owner proposal, what we are seeking is to nudge this particular process forward. Thirdly, one of the things that Mr. Buffett mentions is that he only buys businesses that have three criteria, the second of which is able and honest managers, and that the most important duty for a board is to find and retain a talented CEO. We would note that in reviewing Berkshire Hathaway's largest stock market holdings of businesses, all 10 of these companies have boards that meet our board diversity requirement. In essence, the companies that Berkshire Hathaway has found fit to invest in are those that have more diverse boards. Fourthly, we would like to clarify that through this shareholder proposal, we are not asking for the Berkshire Hathaway board, our guardians, to have a quantifiable end result in terms of its composition but that an initial pool of candidates for a board seat include a woman and another individual who is racially or ethnically diverse. We believe these candidates, if qualified, would also have very high integrity, business savvy, shareholder orientation, 
and a genuine interest in the company. According to a 2016 Harvard Business Review study, including more than one woman or a member of a racial minority in a finalist pool, helps combat the unconsciousness, unconscious biases amongst interviewers and increases the likelihood of a diverse hire. What we are requesting is a small step in that direction to include diverse candidates at the beginning of the search. Finally, we would like to applaud Berkshire Hathaway's robust internal CEO succession plans. Our proposal states that a CEO diversity policy should only apply in the case of an external search. The New York City Comptroller's Office is disappointed that we never had the opportunity to discuss our proposal with directors or management, but remain open to constructive engagement. In the interim, we strongly urge Berkshire Hathaway share owners to support Proposal 4. Thank you. Okay, th thanks, Mark, and, and, and thank you to the controller for the uh, for presenting uh, that supporting statement. Uh, the motion is now ready to be acted upon. Mr. Jackson, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to the proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 65,925 votes for the motion and 485,824 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, as well as all votes outstanding, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be, will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. The proposal fails. I move that this meeting be adjourned. I second the motion to adjourn. A motion has been made and seconded. The meeting is adjourned. So thank you. I'm, I'm just looked at my watch and I talked a lot longer than I should have probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, uh, that's not a unique experience of mine uh, that, that just occurred. Uh, so now we're ready uh, to have questions which uh, Becky Quick has selected from those that's been forwarded to her directly and from from Carol Loomis and Andrew Ross Sorkin and uh, Greg and I are available to be, uh, we'll be answering them uh, for some time. So Becky, uh, you're on and uh, uh, I hope, uh, I hope all the tech, <laughs> I hope everything works. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Warren, I should tell you that uh, since you put that address up on the screen, I've gotten more than 2,500 emails that have been coming in. So there is a lot of demand from shareholders wanting to get in and ask questions. And I'll, I'll ask some that uh, we've compiled before and some that are coming in right now. Uh, the first question, though, comes from one that just came in based on the comments that you were actually saying. Um, this is a question that comes from William Lewis. He said, please, did I understand correctly, Mr. Buffett, to say that Berkshire Hathaway sold its interests in four different airlines? And if so, can you name them? Can the names of those airlines be identified? Yeah, the, I wouldn't normally talk about it, but I think it, it, re, it requires an explanation. And, uh, uh, and it requires an explanation that means we were not disappointed at all in... Uh, the businesses that they were being run and the management, and, and, but we did come to a different opinion on it. And the, the four large, they're the four largest uh, U.S. airlines. It's the American Airlines and 
Delta Airlines and Southwest Airlines and United Continental. And I think collectively they they probably uh, are at least 80% of the revenue passenger miles in the in the uh, uh, that is flown in the United States, and and they have significant uh, international uh, uh, flying too, as, um, excluding Southwest. So we like those airlines. We like, but we we don't. I like. The world has changed for the airlines, and I don't know how it's changed, and I hope it corrects itself uh, in a reasonably prompt way. I don't know whether the um, Americans will have now changed their habits or will change their habits because of of uh, an extended period, if it happens, that uh, we're semi-shut down uh, in, the, in the economy. Uh, I don't know whether the trends toward you know what people have been doing by by phone. I mean, I've been, it's been seven weeks since I've had a haircut. It's been seven weeks since I, more than seven weeks since I put on a tie or anything. I've been, just a question of which sweatsuit I wear. So who knows, uh, who knows how we come out of this, but I think that there's certain industries and unfortunately I think that the airline industry, um, among others, that are really hurt by a a forced, in fact, shut down by events that are that far beyond their control. Greg, would you like to add anything? To that? Really, nothing to add, Warren. Okay. Well, <laughs> we got another Charlie here. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't intend Charlie. to use that as a line, but uh, you know, you've covered it well. Yeah, Thank you. We would have bought other airlines too, incidentally, but those were the four big ones, and that, those ones we could put some money into, and we put. We put whatever it was, seven or eight billion into it, and we did not take out anything like seven or eight billion, and that was my mistake. But it was—it's always a problem if it, uh, uh, there there are things on the lower levels of probabilities that happen sometimes, and and it happened to the airlines, and and I'm the one who made the decision. But Warren, just to clarify on his question, he asked, "Did you sell oh, your whole stake I'm, in all four yeah, of those?" Yeah, the companies? answer is yes. Yeah, when we when we sell something, uh, right, when next, we sell something, very often it's going to be our entire stake. I mean, we 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 don't trim positions or that. That's just not the way we approach it. Any more than if we buy a hundred percent of a business, we're going to sell it down to ninety percent or eighty percent. I mean, if we if we like a business, we're going to buy as much of it as we can and keep it as long as we can. But when we change our mind, right, the yeah, next go question. Ahead, I'm sorry. <clears throat> No, go ahead. When you change your mind. Well, when when we change our mind, we don't we don't uh, take half measures or anything of sort. So, I was amazed at how, frankly, now we sell, we were selling them at far lower prices than we paid, but I was amazed at the the volume. Their airlines always trade in in large volume relatively, but but we 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 have sold the entire positions. Okay, thank you. The next question comes from Robert Tomas from Toronto, Canada, and he says, Warren, why are you recommending listeners to buy now, yet you're not comfortable buying now as evidenced by your huge cash position? Well, A, as I explained, the position isn't that huge when I look at worst case possibilities. I would say that, that there are things that I think are quite improbable, and I 
hope they don't happen, but that doesn't mean they won't happen. I mean, for example, in our insurance business, we could have the world's or the country's uh, number one hurricane that it's ever had, but that doesn't preclude the fact we could have the biggest earthquake a month later. So we, we, we are not, we don't prepare ourselves for a single problem. We prepare ourselves for problems that, that sometimes create their own momentum. I mean, 2008 and nine, you didn't see all the problems the first day when uh, really what really kicked it off was when the, the Freddie and Fannie, the GSEs, went into conservatorship in early September. And, and then when uh, money market funds broke the buck, I mean, uh, there, there, are, there are things that trip other things. And, and we take a very much a worst case uh, scenario into mind that probably is a considerably worse case than, than most people do. So uh, I don't look at it as, as huge. And I'm not, I'm not recommending that people buy stocks today or tomorrow or next week or next month. I think it all depends on your circumstances, but you shouldn't buy stocks unless you expect, in my view, you, you expect to hold them for a very extended period and you are prepared financially and psychologically to hold them the same way you would hold a farm and never look at a quote and never, uh, never pay it. You don't need to pay attention to them. I mean, the main thing to do, uh, and you're not going to pick the bottom and you're not going to, nobody else can pick it for you or anything of the sort. You've got to be prepared to, when you buy a stock, to have it go down 50% or more and be comfortable with it as long as you're comfortable with the holding. And I pointed out, uh, I think a year, maybe two years ago in the annual report, uh, well, just the one before this most recent one, I, I pointed out that there have been three times in Berkshire's history when the price of Berkshire stock went down 50%, three different times. Now, if you owed it on borrowed money, mm. you, you, know, you could have been cleaned out. Uh, there wasn't anything wrong with Berkshire uh, when those three times occurred, but if you're going to, if you're going to look at the price of the stock uh, and think that you have to act because it's doing this or that, or somebody else tells you, well, I mean, you know, how can you stay with that when something else is going up or anything? You really, you've got to be in the right psychological position. And frankly, some people are not really careful. Some people are more subject to fear than, than others. It's, it, 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 it's, it's like the virus. It strikes uh, some people with uh, much greater ferocity than, than, than others. And, and fear, is, uh, fear is something I've really never felt financially. But, but uh, I don't think Charlie's felt it either. But, uh, some people can handle it psychologically. If you can't handle it psychologically, then you really shouldn't own stocks because you're going to buy and sell them at the wrong time. And you should not count on somebody else telling you this. You should, you should do something you understand yourself. If you don't understand it yourself, you're going to be affected by the next person you talk to. And uh, uh, so you should, you should be in a position to hold. And I don't know whether today is a, a great day to buy stocks. I know it will work out over 20 or 30 years. I don't know whether it'll work out over two years at all. I have no idea whether you'll be ahead or behind on a stock you buy on Monday morning or the market.
Warren, the next question comes from Scott Kelly, and he writes in based on the numbers you just put up. He said, what did you spend the $426 million on equities in April? Was that adding to existing positions, or was that initiating new positions? Well, I don't remember, to tell you the truth, but, but one thing you have to allow for. <laughs> well, these are the figures for Berkshire Hathaway, and they include both Todd, and, Todd, uh, Todd Combs and Ted Wessler manage significant sums of money. So it could well be something they bought. It could be something uh, I bought. But I, I, uh, 462 million is not much money at, at Berkshire. It's more to Todd and Ted than it is uh, to me in terms of our positions. But I, I, I literally have no memory of, I, we're not doing anything big, obviously. Uh, we're willing to do something very big. I mean, you could come to me on Monday morning with something that involved 30 or 40 billion or 50 billion dollars and and if we really liked what we were seeing we would do it and th that will happen someday if, if it happens in the market we can't put it all in in one day or one week or one month it took us months to build up our our airline position many months uh we were able to sell them faster than we bought them but we were selling them at lower prices uh so uh the 462 is, is, is essentially meaningless and it may not have even, probably was not mine. All right, this next question comes from Lee Yandar. Um, and his question is, in the last financial crisis, Berkshire acted as a lender of support for eight different deals. Despite the injection of expensive capital through preferred stocks and securing warrants, these companies were, in fact, paying for the sign of confidence from Berkshire in the midst of a crisis, and that was invaluable. Today, we have QE infinity, low interest rates, and hungry hedge funds. Uh, even though the economy has deteriorated rapidly over the last few, men, few months, why have we not acted as a lender of support yet? Well, we haven't seen anything attractive. Uh, uh, and fr frankly, uh, it wasn't predicated on this, but the Federal Reserve did the right thing, and they did it very promptly, which they should have, and I salute them for it, but that means that... Uh, that a lot of companies that needed money and probably should have done their financing a little earlier, but they're perfectly decent companies, got the chance to finance in huge ways in the last uh, five weeks or thereabouts. I mean, it's set records. Some companies have come back twice, a number of very big companies that didn't bother to, to uh, extend out their borrowings uh, came a couple times. Berkshire actually raised some more money. We don't we don't need it, but we'll, we'll I think it's still a good idea over time. And uh, and then there are some pretty marginal companies that have also had access to, to money. So there is no shortage of of funds at uh, rates which we would not invest at. Uh, so. It, we have not we have not done anything because uh, we don't see anything that attractive to do. Now that could change, you know, very quickly, or it may not change. Uh, but in 2008 and 9, the truth is, we weren't we weren't buying those things to make a statement to the world. They may have made a statement to the world to some extent, and I'm glad that they did if they did. But 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 we made them because they seemed intelligent things to do, and markets were such that we didn't really have much competition. Now, it turned out that we would have been a lot better off if we'd waited four or five months 
to do similar things. So my timing was actually terrible uh, in 2008 or 9. But but the what was available was so attractive that even though my timing was terrible, we still we still came out okay or, or a little bit better than okay. But it was not it was not designed. We, what we did was not designed to make a statement. It was designed to to take advantage of what we thought were very attractive terms, but they were terms that nobody else was willing to offer at that time because the market was in a state of panic. And the market in equities was in a state of panic for a short period of time when the virus broke out at, or spread in the United States, and that became apparent. And the debt market was frozen, or in the process of freezing, and. That changed dramatically when the Fed acted, but who knows what happens next week or next month or next year. The Fed doesn't know. Uh, I don't know, uh, and, and nobody knows. Uh, there's various, there's a lot of different scenarios that can play out, and uh, under some scenarios, we'll spend a lot of money, and other scenarios, we won't. Greg, you've been watching what's been happening around Berkshire. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I think your comment on the on the Fed, Warren, because as you know, interestingly, when it was first occurring, there were calls coming in, not the size of transactions we're interested in, nor companies we were inclined to act upon, but there were there was that general interest out there as people were um, in a difficult point in time, i.e., looking at their balance sheet and deciding what they were going to do. But the reality is those companies were not of, not, not of interest. And post, basically, effectively, March 23rd, the companies have been able to act. And, and Warren touched on it at Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Uh, post the Fed action, we actually issued $4 billion of, of securities. That was associated with some um, debts or obligations we had maturing, some short-term obligations we wanted to clearly lengthen out. And we pre-funded one of our capital programs at Pacific Corp with the thought this was the time to get the, the funds in place such that we could proceed with uh, what is really an excellent opportunity both for Pacific Corp, our customers, and ultimately for the Berkshire shareholders. So we've taken action within Berkshire, as, as Warren noted. This is a very good time to borrow money, uh, which means it may not be such a great time to lend money, but the, uh, uh, it's good for the country that it's a good, it's, it's a good time to borrow money. <clears throat> not good for Berkshire, particularly, although we, <laughs> we borrowed some money, so yeah. we, we, uh, we've, uh, we put our money where our mouth is. <clears throat> That gets kind of to another question that came in from Mark McNicholas in Chicago, Illinois. He says, Berkshire itself has a Fort Knox-like balance sheet, but some of its operating companies may be tight on cash during the pandemic. Uh, would Berkshire consider sending cash to its operating companies to, one, ensure that they can get through the pandemic, and, and two, uh, allow them to increase market share while their competitors struggle? Well, we've sent money to a few, and... and uh, uh, we're in a position to do that. We're not going to send money indefinitely to anything where it looks like uh, their future uh, is not, has just changed dramatically from what it was a year or so ago or even six months ago. You know, we made that decision in terms of the airline business. We took money out of the business, basically, at a, even at a substantial loss. And we will not fund a company 
that uh, where we think that it's going to chew up money in the in the future. We started out with a company like that in our textile business at Berkshire Hathaway in 1965, and we went for 20 years trying to think we could solve something that wasn't that solvable. So uh, we are not in the business of subsidizing uh, any companies with shareholders' money if people want to do that with their own money, but we're not going to do it on their behalf. But we have advanced money. We, we're, we're perfectly ready to advance money. Gaining market share and all that, that may happen, but but uh, the companies that that need money probably, uh, market share is not their number one problem, I'll put it that way. <laughs> Greg, would you? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting when we look at our different companies as we went into the pandemic or we're addressing the COVID-19 crisis, obviously the first focus by our management team inappropriately was our employees and, and, and effectively making sure they're safe and that the business environment we're in that, that they could continue to operate. Then we quickly moved to looking at uh, where our customers were in this cycle, i.e. what was the underlying demand within the business. And, and to great credit to our managers, they very much have adjusted their businesses consistent with the underlying needs and demands of our of, of our customers. So effectively, they're moving with the, with the customer, meaning very few of our businesses have actually required funds. Some have, and as Warren said, uh, we've advanced the funds to them, but the, the businesses have really reacted in a way where they're managing consistent with, the, with uh, where the market's at, i.e. Their, the demand for their products. Um, Berkshire is almost certain to generate cash. I mean, it, it, uh, nothing's 100% certain. But, but, and we're, as Greg mentioned, at, at Berkshire Hathaway Energy, we had some short-term financing. We, we don't have short-term financing to any degree. We'll never get ourselves in a position where we have a lot of money that can come due tomorrow. And, and uh, people that were financing uh, heavily with commercial paper and then found their business stop. Well, you've seen what's happened to the airlines. I mean, they need money. Uh, cruise lines need money. Uh, there's some businesses that, uh, you know, it's just the nature of uh, what they're in. And, uh, Berkshire will never get it in a position where it, uh, it, it needs money. But, uh, uh, and, and we factor in, like I say, we, we factor in some things that are not ridiculously unlikely uh, and I'm not going to spell out scenarios because I to some extent if you start spurring, is, is spelling out scenarios you may increase the chance of them happening so it's not something that we really want to talk about a lot but but our uh, our position will be to be uh, to stay a Fort Knox but we don't need it no, we don't need a and it's a little higher now than it was at quarter end. We don't need 130 or 35 billion, but we need a lot of money that's always available. And that means we own nothing but treasury bills. I mean, we do not, we've never owned, we never buy commercial paper. We don't buy, we don't count on bank lines. Uh, you know, one or two of our subsidiaries, a few of our subsidiaries have them, but they, we, we, we basically want to be in a position to get through anything. And, and we hope we, that doesn't happen, but, you can't rule out the possibility any more than in 1929 you could rule out 
the possibility that that uh, you know you would be waiting until 1955 or ni the end of 1954 to get even. The, anything can happen, and, and we want to be prepared for anything. But we also want to do big things. If the prices are attractive, as Greg said, there was a period right before the Fed acted. We were starting to get calls. They weren't attractive calls, but we were getting calls, and the companies we were getting calls from after the Fed acted, a number of them were able to get money in the public market, frankly, at terms that we wouldn't have given it to them. All right, this next question is one that, uh, Greg, you actually touched on the answer to this to some extent, but maybe the two of you could expand on it. It comes from Richard Surser from Tucson, Arizona. He says, Berkshire's annual report indicated that Berkshire had 391,539 employees at the end of 2019. Which areas of our operations have already been hardest hit or will be by the coronavirus pandemic, and what are the implications for the continued employment of those people? Uh, those those people are employed in dozens and dozens of different industries, and there's there are a few industries that there's a a fair likelihood that our employment uh, could be reduced, but they're not large. Uh, I'm just thinking as I'm talking. I mean, it's not like it's not like we're uh, you know in, in the uh, 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 some of the businesses that are, you know, we're not in the hotel business or uh, various aspects of travel and entertainment and all of that that could really be changed in a very major way. So I, I don't, I don't see our employment. I, I, I'll put it this way: five years from now, I think Berkshire will be employing considerably more people, and and uh, I don't, I don't see where we'll have large dips, but. The virus could take off in certain ways that in some of our manufacturing businesses, for example, the demand could be dramatically reduced. And in those cases, we would have, we would have uh, layoffs at some, at some point. Greg? What I would add, Warren, is that as we are in the you know, sort of crux of the, the pandemic, we're still dealing with it, so our businesses have adjusted. Some have had to adjust more. We have, if you look at uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, for example, you can see U.S. electricity consumptions down 4%. That realistically doesn't impact that business in a significant way, and, and longer term will continue to grow that business. So even, in, even during the crisis, uh, a relatively small impact of the business. But as Warren knows, we do have retailers that their doors are shut right now, be it uh, our Seas Candy, the some of our jewelers, and at that point in time, we 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 do adjust and adapt to the environment. I.e., we adjust our workforce, but equally, we do see, for example, Seas at a point our stores will reopen, and at that point, we reemploy the folks. And overall, for Berkshire as a whole, as Warren said, five years from now, we see our employment numbers being far 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 greater than they were are today, and that we see great prospects within the. Uh, the operating businesses as a whole. Yeah, Seas is an interesting example because yeah. we've, we've owned that since 1972. That's a long time, and we love it. And 
we continue to love it. And, and I have a box here of our peanut brittle, and I've got another box of fudge right here, and I'll probably take them all home and not share with Greg. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, But we were in the midst of our Easter season, and Easter is a big uh, sales period for seas, and I don't know whether we were halfway through, but we weren't halfway through in terms of the volume that was going to be delivered because it comes right. toward the end. And uh, essentially, we were we were shut down, and uh, we remained shut down. The malls, the, we've got 220 or so retail stores, and we've got a lot of, uh, 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 you know, when Furniture Mart sells our candy, but the Furniture Mart's closed down. And so, yep. C's business stopped, and uh, it's a very seasonal business to start with, so we have a lot of seasonal workers, too, that come in particularly for the Christmas season, but but we have we have a lot of Easter candy. <laughs> and and uh, it, Easter candy is kind of specialized too, so we won't sell it. And and we produced a good bit of it. And we couldn't ship it. And we couldn't uh, we couldn't put it in stores. And and there's some of that's going on. And of course, I Greg does all the work on those sort of situations. And our managers are terrific, of course, in in, in, in dealing with it. But but this is a very, very unusual period. And like I say, a few years from now, I think Berkshire will be employing more people than 395,000. Over the years, we've, we started with 2,000 of the textile business. And, and we've still got the same playbook. It's, it's, This next question comes from Drew Johnson, who says that he's a longtime shareholder who's attended a couple of meetings. He says in an interview on April 17th, Charlie mentioned that some small businesses owned by Berkshire would not reopen after the pandemic eases. Can you elaborate on which businesses might be impacted? Well, even we have businesses within businesses. At Marmon, don't we have 97 different businesses, for example? Exactly, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and there are some that... Uh, uh, weren't doing that well before. I'm, and I'm not talking about Barman specifically, but they got a couple of them, and there's a couple of, and and uh, it may be that that in effect uh, the the you know what's happened in the last couple of months has accelerated the decline and of those businesses or their customers are developing different habits. I mean, people are developing different habits in retail. There's no question about that. Now that doesn't mean we're we haven't got a bunch of good retail businesses, but uh, there are there are businesses that were that were having problems before, and that have even greater problems now. We don't own our newspapers anymore, but we're financing uh, Lee Enterprise, which does have them. We've actually increased our investment in the newspaper business by by selling the papers to Lee and then refinancing their debt, and the newspaper business was having plenty of problems with both circulation and advertising before the virus came along, but advertising declines every place have accelerated uh, fairly dramatically. And, you know, when the automobile industry stops, the auto dealers don't advertise as much. It's, 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 it's made certain businesses that were tough before even tougher now. And uh, there will be and the management of 
of, of uh, at least one of the subsidiaries has suggested to us, and so there'll be, but there'll be there'll be some changes at a few businesses, but they're they're very small businesses. Uh, our major businesses, uh, and our business of intermediate size. I can't think of anything that that that's of significance that that uh, uh, won't won't reopen, uh, but. It won't be any fun with the, the businesses where the world has really changed. You're seeing a lot of change. Uh, if you own a shopping center, uh, uh, you've got a bunch of tenants that don't want to pay you right now. We don't, and uh, uh, you know, the supply and demand for retail space may change fairly significantly. The, the supply and demand for office space may change significantly. A lot of people learned that they can work at home or that uh, there's other methods uh, of conducting their business than they might have thought that the, uh, from what they were doing a couple of years ago. And when change happens uh, in the world, um, you adjust to it. Yeah, I think the... Oh, uh, go ahead. Becky, I think, I think Greg won. Yeah. Oh, well, sorry, I was just going to add on the Marmon example, our 97 companies there. For example, we have a food service group which sells equipment to a variety of the restaurants. Uh, we have a few businesses that realistically were challenged when the industry was performing really well. And as we come out of the you know, crisis, their, their economic prospects aren't going to be better. And, and in fairness to the teams and the employees in there, they understand that and they're working through it and there'll be other opportunities potentially within the company, within Marmon and things like that. But, you know, there's a very specific answer or example relative to the, to the question. This next question is a follow-up on that. It comes from Chris Freed of Philadelphia, and he says it's been a long-term policy of Berkshire to not sell or close any ongoing subsidiaries as long as their business prospects weren't a money hole. Over the last year, he points out the, the sale of Berkshire Hathaway Media uh, and then Charlie's comments from that interview saying that several small Berkshire subsidiaries will not be opening when the coronavirus lockdown is lifted. So should shareholders assume that Berkshire has now changed its long-term policy in regards to keeping underperforming subsidiaries no, no, around? I think, I think that policy was spelled out for maybe 30 years or so in a addendum to the, in the annual report that we have said that that if a company or if an operation, uh, we think it, it's, it, it, its prospects uh, are that it will continually uh, lose money in the future, that uh, we will certainly, uh, we'll try to sell it to somebody else, uh, but one way or another, we will, we will not continue to, to hold it. And that, that is not a new policy and it's not been changed. You can say, in effect, we did that with the airline industry to some extent. But, uh, if we owned all of an airline now, it would be a tough decision to decide whether to sustain billions of dollars in operating losses when you know, A, you don't know how long it's going to happen or occur, and secondly, you know that it's very likely that there'll be too many planes around uh, and we know what happens in airline pricing when load factors go down and, 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 and uh, there's an oversupply of airline seats. So, you know, we didn't have to make that decision in terms of our own 
operation on it, but but we did make a decision that that that's a very tough management decision to make. And the government, of course, is as uh, well. They've had the first wave of financing for the airlines, but to the airlines' credit, they have very aggressively uh, raised money. I mean, it's it's amazing to me how what a good job they've done of that. And and in the case of uh, I think in the case of three of them, uh, no, two of them, but there may be more coming. They've raised equity money too. I mean, they are they are saying to the the debt holders and investors, you know, you've got to put more money into this business uh, if we're going to be able to continue. And the government's done it, and uh, and private sources have done it, and it's going to. It's exactly the right thing for the managements to be doing, uh, but you know, whether it's whether it makes sense, we'll find out for the investors. This next question comes from Eric Lafont, and it's directed to Greg. He asks, "How is Precision Castparts handling the severe slowdown in the aerospace industry?" So very consistent with everything we've just discussed, which is. Uh, obviously a large part of their business is the aerospace industry uh, and it can really be broken into three areas as we do in our queue but two are being impacted the defense contract business remains very sound and strong within precision cast parts but if you look at the uh, uh, large body aircraft the aircraft that they use within the regional jets that business will move directly with the demand there and, and the jets that are ordered longer term. So precision cast parts is uh, literally, as we speak, continuing to adjust their business relative to the demand that would come out of Boeing. They would be having weekly calls with Boeing, recognizing what are the production orders there and, and adjusting the business uh, accordingly. Boeing raised $25 billion just a day or two yeah. ago, and they raised... 14 billion before that and a year ago they felt they were in a fine cash position and I understand how all that happened. Airbus has had the same situation. They've made some comments recently within the last week, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, they, they, they really don't know what their future is. I, and I don't know what their future is. I, we're going we, to, we're going to have aircraft in this country. We're going to be flying. But the real question is whether you, you need a lot of new planes or not, and and when you'll when you're likely to need them, and and uh, it affects a lot of people, and it certainly affects precision cash parts. It affects General Electric. It except, you know obviously affects Boeing, and and uh, it uh, it's it's it is a blow to essentially have your demand dry up, and it goes up and. The chain and uh, uh, you know the the aircraft manufacturers didn't they didn't bring it on themselves. The airlines didn't bring it on themselves. Precision cast parts didn't bring it on itself. General Electric didn't. It's basically that we shut off air travel uh, in this country and what that does to people's habits, how they behave in the future. It's just hard to evaluate. I don't know the answer, and uh, but. We do know that it will have an effect mm -hmm. on precision cash parts, and it, it, how severe it will be it depends on the same sort of variables that are hitting Boeing and 
um, you name the company in, in aircrafts, and aircraft's a big business. And the, this country's good at it, incidentally, too. I mean, if you think about Boeing, you know, it is what a hell of a company, and, and it's, it's, it's important. It's a huge exporter, and, and, and uh, uh, it affects a lot of jobs, uh, and some of them are with us. And, you know, we hope for the best and we wish everybody the best, obviously, and, and we wish ourselves the best in it. But part of it is out of our, certainly out of our control. Right. This next question is for Warren. Um, do you think GEICO will experience unusually high profitability in 2020 due to the reduced amount of driving, even after giving customers a 15% credit? Well, we have promised to give our customers, at GEICO, we're the second largest auto insurance company, and and different auto insurers are handling a sharing of the of the better experience with their policyholders in different ways. We, our plan will deliver back two and a half billion, roughly or so, in, in recognizing uh, the reduced a frequency of accidents during this period. What we don't know is how long this will continue. I mean, people want to drive their cars still, but uh, conditions have reduced that driving dramatically, obviously. Now, we have instituted a program that runs saving people money for six months, and, and, and so far, other people have largely been two months, but some of them have given a little more. For those two months, then, than we give per month. Our total is the greatest uh, uh, at, at two and a half billion. And uh, uh, in addition to that, uh, we and all the others in the industry, it's not just GEICO, we've also, uh, and insurance commissioners in many cases, I believe have required it, but we have, uh, we, we give people more time to pay if they aren't paying and if they cancel their policy or if they don't end up paying us, we've in effect giving them, giving them free insurance during that period. And, and the delay in payments is obviously increased. Delay of payments on, if you got a shopping center getting rent, the delay in payments is what happens during a period like this. Uh, and that will be a significant cost to us. We don't know how significant will be. There will be more uninsured motorists driving and they cause a disproportionate amount of accidents and that. So there's a lot of variables. We made our best guess as to uh, what we're going to do to reflect the current reduced accidents in our, in our, in, uh, in our premiums that we receive really over the next year, it applies for a six-month on renewals, but that we'll be renewing policies in October that will extend it then next April. And so we've made a guess on it, and and uh, we'll see how it works out. This next question comes from Steven Stoller. He's a shareholder in Atlanta, Georgia, and he says, would you please help us understand the effects of COVID-19 on our insurance businesses? Other insurance companies have reported losses from boosting reserves for future insurance claims that they expect to be paying as a result of coronavirus. 
Yet in Berkshire's 10Q released this morning, we do not appear to have reported much of these future expected losses. Can you tell us why this is the case? What kind of risks Berkshire is underwriting that allows us not to be affected by the pandemic? Or conversely, what, what we are writing that might yeah, well, be? Well, the, the amount of litigation that is going to be generated out of what's already happened, let alone what may happen, is going to be huge. Now, just the cost of defending litigation is a huge, enormous expense, uh, depending on how much there is. Now, in the auto insurance field, which is our number one field in terms of premium volume by some margin, uh, that's more definable. Uh, but who knows what comes out of it in terms of litigation. But, but in what they call commercial multiple peril, which involves property losses, and where some people elect to buy business interruption uh, coverage, uh, many policies, quite clearly in the contract uh, language, would not have a claim for business interruption under a commercial multiple policy where you've elected that. But other policies do. I've, uh, I, know of, I think I know of one company, I don't know the details, that's written a fair amount where they cover, or they, certainly there's a good argument perhaps that they cover uh, uh, business interruption that might arise from a pandemic. Well, they're in a very different position than the standard language, which says that you recover for business interruption only if there's uh, involves physical damage to the property. And you can, you can buy all kinds of different policies. We are not big in the commercial multiple peril business. So, I mean, this is not like our auto business or anything of the sort, but we will have we will have claims, we'll have litigation costs, uh, but proportionally, it's not the same with us as with some other companies which uh, have been much heavier in writing business interruption as part of a commercial multiple peril. But you don't automatically get coverage if you have business interruption. I mean, for example, uh, I think it would be unusual if say General Motors had a strike, which they did, and that they have business interruption that covers the strike. Now, we actually wrote about, probably the only annual report in the United States, we wrote about business interruption insurance because we, we had it over in France when one of our properties was adjacent to a property that's much smaller property that had a fire and then it spread to our plant and it caused a lot of physical damage, and we have bought it. we have business interruption that ties in with that. But if we had some company we were selling auto parts to, and they had a strike, our business would be interrupted. But it's not covered by the. I mean, that is not part of the coverage unless you specifically really buy it. So there's there's some claims that are going to be very valid related to this uh, uh, the, the present situation. There'll be an awful lot that there'll be litigation on that won't be valid, and it, there's no question that some insurance companies, I know one in particular, that uh, will pay a lot of money relative to their size uh, in terms of policies that 
they've written, and, and uh, I think we have reserved, and our history shows we generally have reserved on the conservative side adequately at least, and, and that's, that's certainly our intent, and we tell no managers of any of our insurance operations what numbers we expect from them or do any of that. that uh, they evaluate their losses and they build in something for social inflation, they build in things for you know, all kinds of things. And generally speaking, uh, Berkshire's been pretty uh, pretty accurate in its reserving, and I, I have no reason to think that we're otherwise than that uh, currently. Stephen Tedder from Atlanta, who says he's a 10-year Berkshire shareholder, writes in and he says, do you see Berkshire offering pandemic coverage in future insurance policies? Well, the answer is we, we, we insure a lot of things. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, I don't... We, we had somebody come to us the other day wanting insurance uh, involving a $10 billion... Uh, protection on something very unusual. Uh, we're not going to make that deal in all probability. I, in fact, I would say it's dead. But we would have written, we would have written pandemic insurance if people had come to us and offered us what we thought was the right price. We would have been wrong uh, probably in doing it. But uh, we, we have no reluctance to quote on very unusual things and very big limits. We're famous for it. We haven't done that much of it in certain periods because the prices aren't right. But if you want to come and insure almost anything, uh, and we don't want you to insure against fire if you happen to be a known arsonist or something, but, but if you come to us with any unusual coverages, either in size or in the nature of what's covered, Berkshire is a very good place to stop, and and uh, so somebody wants to buy, they they can dream up the coverage and they can tell us the price they'll pay, and and uh, uh, we we will we'll consider writing it. We wrote a lot of business after 9/11, for example, and there were really only a couple companies in the world that were willing to write the business, and Berkshire and AIG. Uh, wrote a lot of business and we thought we knew what we were doing, but we could have been surprised. I mean, there could have been some follow-on incidents from 9-11 that, that we wouldn't have known about. And, you, know, you don't know for sure the answer. That's why people are buying insurance. But we, wouldn't, we would be willing to write pandemic uh, coverage at the right price. This next question is for Greg, and it comes from a shareholder named Todd Flaska. He says, I don't expect Berkshire to outperform the S&P 500 during good times. However, I remain a long-term investor because of the huge war chest that can be deployed during the downturns in the market like we're seeing right now. Warren has been brilliant at negotiating mutually favorable deals with companies that have somewhat urgent capital needs during these downtimes. These opportunities may only come about once a decade. There's a small window of time for these deals. They all come at once, and you don't really know if you're at the bottom of the market when the deals start coming. Will Berkshire be able to continue this approach when Warren and Charlie are no longer at the helm? I, I fundamentally, with, without Warren and Charlie at the helm, I don't see the culture of Berkshire changing 
I don't see our billet, which a large part of that is uh, uh, having the business acumen to understand the, the transaction, the economic prospects, and then the ability to, the ability to act quickly. I really don't see that changing as we've all listened. You know, there's no one better than Warren and Charlie, but equally, we've got a talented team in Berkshire, uh, both at the Berkshire level and within our, our managers that can obviously look at opportunities too very quickly. But, you know, the reality is it's a huge uh, advantage we have right now when we would clearly want to uh, be in a position to maintain that, that, uh, that position of strength. Warren? Yeah, we will maintain it. And, and, and we not only have it with the managers of the, in some cases, uh, not, not all cases by a long shot, but in some cases we have uh, managers that will occasionally come up with something that can, can be quite attractive. Uh, but between Greg and Todd and Ted, we've got three extraordinarily good minds in terms of allocating capital. And, and uh, you know, I, Charlie may get, we may get an occasional call of, because of someone we knew 20 years ago or something, but they know a lot more people. They've got a lot more energy and their minds work the same way as ours have in the past. So I, uh, I think it could very well be a significant improvement when the three of them are thinking about capital allocation than when Charlie and I are now, particularly now that he's found Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this next question comes from Max Rudolph in Omaha, Nebraska, and he asks if Berkshire or any of its fully owned businesses have participated in any of the bailouts from the Fed or the Treasury. I certainly don't know of any. I guess you could say while we own the airlines, uh, uh, well, you know, the question is about fully owned businesses, and there's no way yeah. that I wouldn't know about anybody that... Did any of that, Greg? Yeah. No. In fact, uh, uh, we've been very clear with the with the businesses, but we our, our businesses understood our uh, how Berkshire operates, and equally, we were very clear that we would not be participating in any of those programs or, or quote bailouts. This is a similarly related question. It comes from Seth Frieden, who says, as a long-term shareholder of Berkshire B shares, I'd like to know Warren's viewpoint around smaller holdings, specifically Oriental Trading Company and Nebraska Furniture Mart that are based in your hometown of Omaha. Uh, he imagines that those smaller business units have been adversely impacted by COVID shelter-in-place mandates. So would like to know if Oriental Trading or other small business units applied for PPP loans or participated in those acts and if they didn't qualify for a loan or didn't participate, then how will Berkshire support those smaller businesses to make sure that they can continue to employ uh, their employees? Yeah, well, to my knowledge, I, I, and, uh, none of them have uh, gone in for government money. And uh, uh, the, the two that are mentioned, I don't like to get into specific companies, but I can, I can assure you that the Nebraska Furniture Mart and Oriole Trading, in my view, have a fine future. But I, 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 I don't want to talk about 
go down the list, obviously, of every single company because some of them I don't know the answer to. Uh, you know, we actually decided some time ago that that our newspapers would have a much better chance of surviving if they were run as part of Lee than if we ran them independently. And and as I said earlier, we actually put considerably more money, we probably put more money in the newspaper business than virtually anybody in the country uh, in the last uh, six months because we took over a loan that would have been a problem in the year, whatever it might have been, maybe a year and a half. And uh, we enable them to just deal with one lender rather than a group, and they are doing a better job with the newspapers than we would do, and that's always our preference if we've got a business that's that does not have look looks like it is not going to uh, uh, sustain itself over time in our hands. If we can find somebody else that we think will do a better job, we'd we'd love to have them uh, run it. Uh, so. Uh, if we have a problem business, uh, we would prefer to find somebody that thinks they can do a better job and probably can do a better job of running it than we can. But some businesses just disappear. We we started with the textile business. We started a company called Diversified Retailing, which merged into Berkshire, became part of Berkshire, and, and uh, it started with a department store in Baltimore. And Department stores looked good in 1966, but the world has gone against them. And we had a trading stamp business at one time, and uh, and we stayed longer than anybody else. But you know, the world left trading stamps behind, or uh, and that's going to happen with some businesses. That's capitalism, uh, and it will happen to some Berkshire businesses over the next 10 years, in the next 50 years. We think we'll find more of them that will grow and, and net that Berkshire will grow. But we do not think, if you own a great many businesses, that everyone is destined for success. That's why I suggest to people they buy an index fund. I do not, with the exception of Berkshire, I, I, I would not want to put all my money in any one company, although there's a few I wouldn't mind being very close to that. But uh, I don't think, you know, you get surprises in this world and uh, there will be businesses that we think are very good that turn out not to be so good and there will be other businesses that turn out better than we think and and uh, and it's up to the world to judge our batting average over time. Greg? Yeah. Well, I, I would just add an echo again that when it comes to the PPP loans, we're not aware of any of our businesses taking them and and you know, as I said, we encouraged them if they were ever thinking that there was going to be a dialogue and we're not aware of any businesses pursuing them. I would also just add that when you look at our businesses as we went into the crisis, they responded very well. So as we look at our businesses, and Warren touched on this, our large businesses, our mid-sized businesses, and even as you go down from there, they're, they're in uh, very sound shape as we go through the pandemic and are really preparing to emerge now. So they're evaluating listen, they're going to have a different customer, there's going to be different consumer behaviors, how our employees work. Uh, I, a lot of them work at home now. Does that make sense? And the communities we're operating in have all changed, but we're literally moving from the point of, okay, we're, we're, we're 
we're making it through the crisis and really planning to reemerge now. And I would say our businesses are in an extremely sound place. We don't know when the, what? Uh, this next question. Well, I was just going to say, what we don't know, we don't, we, don't, we don't know how long this period lasts. Uh, and, no, and nobody knows. Uh, you know, we don't know whether the, most people think, and they know more about it than I do, that the virus will, you know, to some extent, uh, uh, decline in its spread and during summer months. And I would say a good many think uh, that it will come back at some later date. And how the American public reacts if they get their hopes up uh, through some reopening, some through, uh, through some summer diminution, and how they would react to a second attack in effect by the virus. It's like Dr. Foss, you know, the virus is going to determine our behavior. You know, we, and, and we're doing a lot of smart things and we've got a lot of very smart people, but there are unknowns and the unknowns that apply to the health aspect create unknowns in the economy. And uh, uh, we will, we'll have to keep evaluating things as we go along. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope, like crazy obviously, that, that, uh, that once suppressed it, it doesn't come back and that, that we readjust. But things don't always work perfectly. That doesn't mean there was a better course of action. It would not, I would not go around criticizing people at all for what they've done or anything of the sort. I just think you're dealing with a huge unknown and I think that the degree to which it's disturbed the world and changed habits and endangered businesses in the last couple of months indicates that you better be, not be too sure of yourself about what will what it'll do in the next six months or year or whatever. Warren, a moment ago, you mentioned that you still are recommending that people invest in an S&P 500 index fund. Uh, let me ask this question that came in from Kevin. He says, the last few weeks we've been hearing from active money managers that the day of passing in passive investing is over. The historical safety of investing in an index fund long term is gone. Would you please provide your thoughts on this topic, particularly in regards to an investment time span of 10 years? Well, I can tell you I haven't changed my will, and it, it, it directs that my, my widow would uh, have 90% of the funds in index funds, and it's, it's, I think it's better advice than people are generally getting from people that are getting paid a lot to give other advice. You don't make a lot of money advising an S&P 500 index fund. I mean, that, and... and uh, how you can say the day of index funds is over? I mean, if you, if you say the the day of investing in America is over, I would disagree quite violently. And then is there something special about index funds being a terrible way to invest? Uh, I just don't think, they're really very hard to have evidence of that. I mean, if, if the index funds reflect the market uh, uh, and one side has high fees that, uh, that think they can pick out stocks uh, and the other side has low fees, I know which side's gonna win over time. And it's, you have to recognize that it's in, 
in a great many people's interest to convince you that they can do something that they may well even believe they can. And a certain percentage of them will do it from luck and a few people will do it from skill. And that's what makes it so enticing that you can find the Jim Simons or somebody that's going to produce extraordinary return. Uh, and uh, Jim and his group have done it by, by brain power. It's very unusual, and incidentally, they are going to charge you a lot of money, and they're going to actually maybe close up their fund uh, if they do it because they can't do it with really huge amounts of money compared to what they've how the record's been established in the past. So, it's you, know, you just have to recognize you're dealing with an industry where it pays to be a great salesperson, and it pays even better if you're a great salesperson and you can actually produce something. But the money is in selling. The, the, there's a lot more money in selling than, than in managing, actually, if you look to the essence of investment management. I got a number of variations on this next question, some more polite than others. This one's right about down the middle. Uh, but this is from Mark Blakely, who writes in from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he says, like many, I'm a proud Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. However, in comparing the performance of Berkshire with the S&P 500 over the last 5, 10, or 15 years, I've been disappointed in Berkshire's underperformance. Even year-to-date, Berkshire is trailing the S&P 500 by 8%. To what would you attribute Berkshire's underperformance? Well, I can't imagine ever selling my Berkshire stock. At some point, money is money. Well, I, I agree with everything that uh, I forget his name, but said, I mean, the uh, the truth is that that's, I recommend the S&P 500 to people, and I happen to believe that Berkshire uh, is as, about as sound as any single investment can be uh, in, in terms of uh, earning reasonable returns over time. But I, I would not want to bet my life on whether we beat the S&P 500 over it the next 10 years. I think there's a, you know, I obviously think there's a reasonable chance of doing it, but, and we've had periods, I don't know how many out of the 50, 55 years we've been doing it, or at, uh, uh, I don't know how many we've beaten it or not. I, I mentioned earlier that 1954 was my best year, but, uh, but I was working with, absolutely with peanuts, unfortunately. and. And I think if you work with small sums of money, I think there is some chances, some chance of a few of people that really do bring something to the game. But I think it's very, very hard for anybody to identify them. And I think that when they work with large funds, it gets tougher. And uh, it's certainly gotten tougher with for us with larger funds. And I would make no promise to anybody that we will do better than the S&P 500. But I, what I will promise them is that I've got 99% of my money in Berkshire and most members of my family are, may not be quite that extreme, but they're close to it. And I do care about what happens to Berkshire uh, over the long period about as much as anybody could care about it. Uh, but, you know, caring doesn't guarantee results. It does guarantee attention. But, uh, Greg? Well, I, I would agree, one that there's never guarantees, but when I, I look at the uh, assets we have in place and the teams that are in place, i.e., 
you're committed to Berkshire, but we have dedicated teams that uh, equally are dedicated to Berkshire, and they're sure going to give it their their best effort every day. And I, when I look at the assets and the people, I think we have, a, as you said, a, a, you can't guarantee it, but we have a, a great chance of, of, of sure giving a good effort to help perform it. It's hard to imagine getting a terrible result with Berkshire, well, but, but, you know, anything yeah. can happen. And what I do know is it would be easier to be running $5 million than, than our book net worth at Berkshire at the quarter end, I think, was 370-some billion, which is down, but it's still greater than the book net worth of any corporation in the United States. That's uh, probably, I mean, maybe there's some federal corporation that has more, but in terms of... It may, and it may be the greatest in the world. I'm not sure. When I would and that, add, that, make, that makes life difficult in some ways, too. <laughs> right. And, and the potential of our operating businesses are substantial. When you think we've talked about energy, you touched on it, that that infrastructure is continuing to change. There's, you know, we're ready for $100 billion of investment opportunities there. If we just look at the business over the next 10 years and the infrastructure that's required and how it's changing, substantial, substantial investments there that just tell me we have very good prospects it's, it's, uh, and we're well positioned to, to, to pursue them. Um, which again, to me, when you look at our core businesses, you touched on them, Burlington, the insurance and, and, and energy, it's t- our, our downside is very nicely protected. We have three really core great businesses. Yeah, and we're better positioned than anybody in the energy business. That, that yeah. Just because we don't have dividend requirements, we've retained $28 billion of earnings over 20 years. That, that You can't do it if you run a, a normal public company. And we've got a huge appetite, and the, and the country needs it. Uh, the world needs it. And uh, we are a very, very logical, uh, well-structured well-managed, I would say, because it doesn't involve me, uh, company to participate uh, in just huge requirements around the world. Now, you know, they're slow and they involve governments and they, they I mean, you know, state governments and there's a lot of, it's not anything that happens dramatically. It will happen and, and Berkshire should participate in a huge way. We can do things in insurance nobody else can do. Uh, that doesn't mean much at many times, but occasionally it may be important. Uh, so, so there are there are some advantages to size and strength, but there are disadvantages to size too. If if we find a, some great opportunity that for a billion dollars to double our money, that's a billion pre-tax, and that's that's 790 million after tax, and on a market value of 450 billion or whatever it may be, it, it doesn't amount to much, unfortunately. We'll still try and do it if we can. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Warner. <laughs> uh, I want to ask this question that came in because I think some people may have had a misinterpretation about something you said a few minutes ago. This is the benefit of being able to get these questions real time. Uh, but a few moments ago, you were talking about the people uh, at the company who will be allocating capital after you and uh, Charlie are no longer doing it. And you mentioned that you've got Todd, Ted, and Greg all doing that. But I've, I've gotten a few questions that read similar to this. This one's from Edward Papula in New York City, who says, Dear Warren, I noticed you didn't mention Ajit Jain when you reeled off your list of future management. Is he out of the picture? Well, Ajit 
is not in the capital allocation business. He is the best. Well, he's got one of the best minds in the world. I mean, I wrote his father after he worked for us for a few years. A few years. I wrote him again the other day, but 20 years ago I wrote him and I said, if you've got another son like this, send him, send him over from India because we'll own the world. And, now, Ajit is one of a kind. Anybody will tell you that's had any contact with him and particularly anybody in the insurance business where they know him well, he is absolutely one of a kind. But his job is not capital allocation, it's it's evaluating insurance risks. And that is a rare, he possesses a rare talent and he has a, a huge capital backing uh, to do it. So we, he's an incredible asset. But Greg, and Todd and Ted have been in the asset allocation business in a big way for a long time. That's their game, and Ajit's game is insurance. So that's why I mentioned those three. And incidentally, while Charlie and I are around, we kind of like capital allocation ourselves. So <laughs> <laughs> we're not going anyplace voluntarily, but we probably will go some, someplace involuntarily before that long. <laughs> Charlie's in good health, incidentally. I'm in good health. <laughs> um, Greg, let me ask you one of these capital allocation questions. Uh, this one comes from Matt Leibel, and he says, Berkshire directed 46% of capital expenditure in 2019 to Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Can you walk us through with round numbers how you think differences in CapEx spending versus economic depreciation versus gap depreciation and help explain the time frame over which we should recognize the, contract, uh, the contracted return on equity from these large investments as we are shareholders in, uh, as we as shareholders are making in Ber Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway Energy? Right. So <clears throat> when we look at Berkshire Hathaway Energy and their capital programs, we try to really look at look at it as, as, as it was highlighted, really in a couple different uh, packages. One, what does it actually require to maintain the existing assets for the next 10, 20, 30 years? I.e., it's not incremental, it's effectively maintaining the asset, the reflection of depreciation. And, and our goal is always to clearly understand across our businesses, do we have businesses that require more than our depreciation? or equal or less. And happy to say with the assets we have in place and how we've maintained the energy assets, we generally look at our depreciation as being more than adequate if we deploy it back into capital to maintain the uh, asset. Now, the unique thing in, in the lion's share of our energy businesses that are, are regulated, uh, and that exceeds 85% of them, 83% of them, uh, we still earn on that capital we deploy back into that business. So it's not a, um, a, a traditional model where you're putting it in, but you're effectively putting it in to maintain your existing earnings stream. So it's not drastically different, but we do earn on that capital. But what we do spend a lot of time, and that's what, when, when Warren and I think about the substantial amounts of opportunities, that that's incremental capital that is truly needed within uh, new opportunity. So it's built, it's to build incremental wind, incremental uh, transmission that services the wind or, or other types of renewable solar. That's all incremental to the business and drives incremental both growth in the business. It does require capital, but it does drive growth uh, within the energy business. So there's really the, the two buckets. I think 
we would use a number a little bit lower than the depreciation we're comfortable the business can be maintained at that level and as we deploy amounts above that we really do view that as quote uh incremental or growth capex yeah we have what what 40 billion or something what do we have in sort of kind of in the works oh yeah so so we have basically as warren's highlighting 40 billion in the works uh of capital that's over the next effectively nine years 10 year period a little approximately half of that we would view as maintaining our assets more a little more than half of it's truly incremental but and that are known those are known projects we're going to move forward with and i would be happy to report we probably have another 30 million 30 billion that aren't far off of becoming real opportunities in that business now as warren said that takes a lot of time it's a lot of work the transmission projects for example we're finishing in 2020 were initiated in 2008 when we bought Pacific Corp. I remember working on that transmission plan, putting it together, thinking six to eight years from now, we'll, we'll have them in operation 12 years later. And, and over that period of time, we, we earn on that capital. We have invested, and then when it comes into service, we earn on the whole amount. So we're very pleased with the opportunity, but it, it, we plant a lot of seeds, put it that way. Yeah, and these are not, it's not like they're super high return thing but they're they're decent returns and and uh, over time and and uh we're almost uniquely situated to d deploy the capital uh, as opposed i mean uh, you, you could have government entities do it too but but in terms of a private enterprise and uh, they take a long time they earn decent returns i've always said about the energy but it's not it's not a way to get real rich but it's a way to stay real rich and and uh, uh, we will deploy a lot a lot of money at decent returns not super returns and, and you shouldn't earn super returns on that sort of thing I mean it it, it it does you are getting rights to do certain things that governmental authorities are authorizing and and they they should protect consumers and but they also should protect uh, people to put up the capital uh, and you know it's worked now for 20 years and it's got a long runway ahead all right this next question comes from Jason in New Jersey as both a Berkshire and Occidental shareholder I was encouraged to see your investment in the company but with passing weeks it became evident that your investment facilitated uh, Occidental management's ability to avoid a shareholder vote on the Anadarko acquisition, a very shareholder-unfriendly outcome. This deal proved to be irresponsible and expensive from an Oxy perspective and ultimately very value-destructive for Oxy shareholders. In my view, it also permanently hurt Berkshire's reputation in the marketplace. Please comment on this unfortunate outcome and tell me why Oxy shareholders and other market observers shouldn't feel this way. Well, yeah, we said right from the beginning although we didn't certainly expect to agree to it, uh, of what's happened. We, we said, essentially, when you buy into an oil, a, a huge oil production company, uh, you know, how it works out is going to depend on the price of oil to a great extent. It, it's not going to be your geological home runs or, or, or super mistakes or anything like that. It, 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 is, a, it is a investment that depends on the price of oil, and you know the I 
when oil goes to minus $37. <laughs> it happened the other day for, for, I guess it was the May contract. Uh, you know, that's off the chart. And, and if, you, if you own oil, you should only own oil uh, if you expect these prices uh, to go up significantly. I don't know whether they'll go up significantly or not. We're in the, we're in the transaction. Our commitment uh, was made on a Sunday uh, when the management of Anadarko favored Chevron and Chevron had a breakup fee of a billion dollars and, and accidental people have been working on it for several years uh, and it was attractive at oil prices that then prevailed and it doesn't work, obviously. Uh, it doesn't work at $20 a barrel. Certainly doesn't work at minus $37 a barrel, but it doesn't work at $20 a barrel. And everything the oil companies have been doing, whether it's Exxon or Occidental or anybody else, it doesn't work uh, at these oil prices. That's why oil production is going to go down a lot uh, uh, in the next few years because it does not pay to drill. Now, that's happened at other times in the past. Uh, but the situation is, you know, you don't know where you're going, going to store the incremental barrel of oil and oil demand is down dramatically. And, and for a while, the Russians and the Saudis were trying to outdo each other and how much oil they could produce. And when you've got too much in storage, it doesn't work its way off that very fast. Now, you will have production of oil go down in the United States significantly. It does not pay to drill in all kinds of formations that it, it paid before. And it doesn't, pay, it doesn't pay to have paid the price that oil was trading at in the ground a year or two ago. And, uh, and to that extent, if you're an oxy shareholder, you know, you've, or any shareholder in any oil-producing company, uh, you join me in having made a mistake so far in terms of of where oil prices uh, went, and who knows where they go in the future. Let me follow up with this one, then this one comes in from Manish Ball, who says, is there a risk of permanent loss of capital in the oil equity investment? Well, there certainly is. You know, there's no question. If, if oil stays at these prices, there's going to be a lot of money, a whole lot of money, and it'll extend to bank loans, and it'll affect the banking industry to some degree. Not that it doesn't, doesn't destroy them or anything, but it, there's a lot of money that's been invested that was not invested based on a... $17 or $20 or $25 price for for WTI West Texas Intermediate Oil and uh, uh, but you can do the same thing in copper you, know, you can do the same thing in, in some of the things we manufacture I mean it, it but with commodities it's particularly dramatic and uh, you know farmers have been getting lousy prices but to some extent the government subsidizes them I'm all for it actually uh, uh, I'm, uh, but if you're an oil producer, you take your chances on future prices, unless you want to sell a lot of futures forward. Oxy actually did sell 300,000 barrels a day 
uh, of uh, puts, in effect, that, uh, or they, they they bought puts, but and sold uh, calls, in effect, to match it, and they were protected on at ten dollars for a layer of ten dollars uh, a barrel on three hundred thousand barrels a day, uh, but. You're really buying, when you buy oil, you're betting on oil prices over time and, and uh, over a long time. Uh, and oil prices, uh, there's, there's risk. And, and the risk is being realized by oil producers as we speak. Uh, there will be, if these prices prevail, there will be a lot of bad loans and energy loans and, and if, or, or bad debts and energy loans. And, if there are bad debts and energy loans, you can imagine what happens to the equity holders. So yes, there's risk. All right, this question comes from Bob Coleman. Um, he says, Warren, could you bring us up to date with the status of your equity put contracts? Sourcing the 2019 annual yeah. report uh, found on page 60, it appears at 2019 year end, the fair value liability was just under a billion dollars. And if the indexes decline 30%, the liability obligations balloon to $2.7 billion. So if the indexes are down 60%, would Berkshire's obligation be close to $5.5 billion? Does that math seem reasonable? And are there any loose ends or open exposures associated with No, they, 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 we, between 2004, I think, and 2006, I think we wrote 48 maybe 50 contracts, something like that. The, the shortest was 15 years. The longest was 20 years. And we received, as I remember, roughly $4.8 billion, which we were free to do with what we wanted. And we agreed uh, to pay based on where one or more of four indices uh, were selling for at the time of expiration, they were so-called European-style puts where they're only payable based on one date. And we did not have, with a small exception, we did not have to put up collateral, which uh, was part of the deal. And we've had that $4.8 billion. Uh, we probably had an original nominal value of something over $30 billion, maybe $35 billion. That's if everything went to zero. Uh, I mean, if Dow Jones went to zero, the FTSE went to zero, and the Nikkei, and so on. Um, a number of those have run off, so we now have about 14 billion nominal. We have something less than half left. We haven't paid out anything significant. We bought back a few of them. Um, if everything went to zero, we would owe 14 billion. If everything were to sell at the same price it was selling for on March 31st, uh, I think the number uh, is some, I think it's somewhat less than we carry as a liability on the balance sheet, which is two and a fraction billion. So, so far, so good. I mean, we've had the use of a lot of money and the outstanding potential of them is if the market went up a lot, we wouldn't have to pay anything. And if it goes down some more, we have to pay more than a couple of billion, but we've got the liability set up for that. But so far, so good on, on that. And it is not anything that causes us any problem. They come due, the final one I think comes due sometime in, in 2023. 
Uh, I think there's, uh, I think maybe 20 or 25 percent of them come due late this year, and uh, so it's the there's nothing that the questioner doesn't really understand about them. I can tell by the question, and and there's no surprises there. There's there's no way that some liability could double up on us, except based on uh, except relating to where those indices close at the expiration of a group of different puts, which, like I say, have been more than cut in half. And we've done very well on it. Hmm. Key to that. Warren, you mentioned a few minutes ago that well, you... Well, I was just going to say, oh, key ahead. to that ahead, was, with just a couple of tiny exceptions, we did not we did not agree to put up collateral. We never would have gotten ourselves in that position. And uh, th that was when we made the deals. We uh, we just would not get ourselves in that position, and we never never will. Uh, where where on a given date, we could have some tremendous obligation that that would come due that we weren't count on getting uh, having come due. I'm done then, Becky. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay, thanks. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that you're very concerned about Berkshire's long-term health, too. This question came in from Drew Estes in Atlanta, Georgia, who says, there's already speculation of a post-Buffett breakup of Berkshire, and given the sway carried by modern activists, the speculation should be taken seriously. Many long-term owners see the folly in this view. A $25 billion ancillary earnings stream provides a lot of flexibility when investing insurance float. On our and your estate's behalf, could you more forcefully make the case of maintaining Berkshire's current architecture? If you don't, that responsibility will fall on an unknown set of shoulders with far less credibility. Well, if you were to, if you were to sell Berkshire's various subsidiaries, uh, you would incur a very significant amount of tax at the corporate level before anything was distributed to the shareholders, uh, you can spin off a given one or something of the sort, but the ability to break up a diverse uh, company without tax implications, there was there was something called the general utilities uh, doctrine that prevailed in various ways up until 1986, and a lot of people seem to comment based on the fact that uh, that didn't happen in 1986. And there's imaginative ways where people try to avoid taxes and can do it in some cases. Uh, on certain types of transactions, if you were to break up Berkshire, uh, that would be one factor. But the interaction of being able to move capital around in terms of being able to do things in insurance that we couldn't do unless there were the backup earnings and capital employed in the other entities, there's there's enormous uh, advantages in capital deployment uh, within the place. So I, uh, there is not a big discount to break up value uh, embodied in Berkshire's price. And the situation actually is that although all my Berkshire shares, every share, will be given to charities pursuant to a plan, I developed back 14 years ago uh, and followed ever since and will continue following this July. I'll be giving away $3 billion or so worth of the stock. And But it's all, it's still 
involves uh, a big voting percentage that, including other people that still remain in the picture, aside even from from the Buffett family, uh, it it isn't going to happen. Now, I will tell you, everybody in the world will come around and propose something and say it's wonderful for shareholders, and by the way, it involves huge, huge fees. I mean, you do not... You do not get impartial advice from Wall Street uh, when, there, when there's an uh, enormous amount of, of fees possible from one action and no fees applicable from another action. But uh, you, can, you can be sure I've thought about it, and I would say that you can, you can count on Berkshire's present posture being continued for a, a long time. I can't tell you what's going to happen 100 years from now. And... Uh, and I can't tell you exactly what would happen, for example, if, 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 if certain ideas in terms of wealth taxes changed or taxes on foundations changed. I mean, there could, but my plan has been thought out and in place for a long time. And it not only ensures that the money that's been made off Berkshire, all of it ends up going to various philanthropies staggered over time, but it also, it, 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 it will keep the walls away. Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I, I think the comment on the, the capital allocation is critical, that we have the ability to move the capital amongst the, be it the operating businesses or up to the insurance or down, uh, with really no consequences to our shareholders. That's uh, the value driver, the unique structure of Berkshire, and it creates immense value. So that's all I would add, or, or second, I guess. All right, this question comes from Rob Grandish in Washington, D.C. He says, interest rates are negative in much of Europe, also in Japan. Warren has written many times that the value of Berkshire's insurance companies derived from the fact that policyholders pay up front, creating insurance float, on which Berkshire gets to earn interest. If interest rates are negative, then collecting money up front will be costly rather than profitable. If interest rates are negative, then the insurance float is no longer a benefit but a liability. Can you please discuss how Berkshire's insurance companies would respond if interest rates became negative in the United States? Well, if they were going to be negative for a long time, uh, you, better, you better own equities or you better own something other than, than, than debt. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable what's happened in the last 10 years. I've been wrong in thinking that, that you could... Uh, really have the developments you've had uh, without inflation taking hold. But uh, we have 120 odd billion. Well, we have some almost very high percentage in treasury bills, some in other, and some just in cash. But we, but those treasury bills are paying us virtually nothing. Now, they're a terrible investment over time. But they are the one thing that when opportunity arises, it will arise at a time and maybe the only thing you can look to to pay for those opportunities is the treasury bills you have. I mean, the rest of the world may have stopped. And we also need them to protect, be sure that we can pay the liabilities we have in terms of policyholders over time. And we take that very seriously. Uh, so if the world turns into a world where you can issue more and more money and have negative interest rates over time, uh, 
I'd have to see it to believe it, but I've seen a little bit of it. I've been surprised, so I, I've been wrong so far. Uh, I do not think that... Uh, uh, I don't see how you can uh, create... Uh, I would say this. If you can have negative interest rates and pour out money and incur more and more debt relative to productive capacity, you'd think the world would have discovered it in the first couple thousand years rather than just coming on it now. But we will see. It's, it's, one of the mo it's probably the most interesting question I've ever seen in economics is, is, uh, is uh, can you keep doing what we're doing now? And, and uh, we've been able to do it, or the world's been able to do it for now a dozen years or so and but we're we may be facing a we may be facing a period where we're testing that hypothesis that you can continue it uh with a lot more force than we've tested it before greg do you have any thoughts on that i wish i knew the answer maybe you do <laughs> <laughs> no i i i think uh as you as you articulated i think it was in the annual report too i mean the, we don't know the answer um but uh as you said, some of the fundamentals right now are very interesting relative to having a, a negative interest rate. But I know, I, I hate to say it, but I don't have anything to add. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to be Secretary of the Treasury if I knew I could keep raising money at negative interest rates. That, that makes life pretty simple. It, uh, uh, it, we're doing things that we really don't know the ultimate outcome. I think, and I think in general, they're the right things, but I don't think they're without consequences. And I think they could be kind of extreme consequences if pushed far enough, but but there would be kind of extreme consequences if we didn't do it as well. So somebody has, yeah. has to you know, balance those 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 questions. All right, this question comes from Adam Schwartz in Miami, Florida. He says Berkshire is the largest holding in his partnership, which also houses most of their net worth. Um, he says Berkshire's invested in many capital-intensive businesses through the years, railroads as an example. How do you think about the inflationary or even deflationary risks for all of the capital-intensive businesses, and could this prove to be an existential problem for businesses? Kind of referencing what you were just talking about, that eventually the bill for the debts being issued comes due. Will it eventually come from all businesses through some combination of higher tax rates on corporations, increased wages for, for the lower middle class? Yeah, well, I certainly think that increased corporate taxes are a much higher probability than having lower corporate taxes. So I, I think that we got handed as a corporation a big chunk of what used to be the government's profits from our business a couple of years ago. And uh, it would depend on, to some extent, which party is elected and, and uh, whether they have control of both houses as well as the presidency and who knows what else. But uh, uh, we could very easily have higher corporate income taxes and perhaps much higher corporate income taxes at some point. And uh, in terms of capital intensive businesses, they're just not as good if you can find an equally good business. <laughs> I mean, in terms of operations, that doesn't require capital. I mean, they're, you know, the uh, C's never C's never re required capital. It didn't grow, but it's, but it's, it's it just doesn't 
it didn't take money to expand it. And it, it delivered enormous sums to us. And because we own it within Berkshire, to redeploy it elsewhere didn't require a lot of tax expense, either at the corporate level or at the personal level. Uh, uh, so you really want a business, and everybody wants a business, that doesn't take any capital to speak of and keeps growing and doesn't take more capital as it grows. Now, our utility business, our energy business requires more capital as it grows. Our railroad business, to some extent, requires more capital if it doesn't grow even. Uh, so capital-intensive businesses, uh, by their nature, uh, you know, are not as good as something where people pay in advance and you don't need the capital. I mean, if you look at, if you look at where the top market value is in a $30 trillion market, you know, if you take the top four or five companies that account for, you know, maybe three, four trillion of, or so of that 30 trillion, basically they don't take much capital. And, and that's why they're worth a lot of money because they make a lot of money and they don't require the money to any great extent in the business. We own some businesses like that, but it's certainly not the railroad and it's not it's not the uh, energy business. Uh, they're good businesses. We love them. But uh, if they didn't take any capital, they'd be unbelievable. They're good. But that's just uh, that's uh, what we've learned from 50 or 60 years of operating businesses, that if you can find a great business that doesn't require capital when it grows, you've really got something. And to a certain extent, because Insurance uses the kind of assets we would like to own anyway. Our insurance business doesn't really take capital. It requires having capital available, but we're able to invest that money largely in things we'd like to own anyway. So we're particularly well-suited for the insurance business, and it's really been the most important factor in our growth over the years, although a lot of other things contribute. Greg, you're you're in the capital. You were in the capital intensive business. So yeah. that, tell us about it. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, there's no question. Obviously, we'd prefer to be in a less capital intensive business, but there are unique opportunities there. And I, the one I would touch on when I think of inflation, or even potentially uh, as we go through this uh, uh, crisis and and maybe a prolonged one, or how, depending on how long it takes to recover. I mean, we are in a unique when we're looking at energy or rail, we do have a certain amount of pricing power. And and it's through our regulatory formulas or, or how our arrangements are with our customers. So if we then were to move into an inflationary period, uh, it's not perfect protection, but those businesses uh, generally re can recover a significant portion of their costs, even in an inflationary environment, and still earn a, a, a reasonable return. They're not going to be great returns, as you highlighted, Warren, but they're still going to earn a reasonable oh, yeah. return yeah. on their capital, even in a, an inflationary period. There may be some lag and some things like that, but they're still going to be very sound investments. So. Oh, yeah. If there was 10 for 1 inflation, make it extreme, Yeah, well, we'd be happy we own the railroad, very yeah. happy. Uh, uh, well, we'd be investing a lot of capital in it, but but that business is, in my view, is a very, very solid business for many, 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 many decades to come. I said originally we bought it with a 100-year time horizon, and I've extended that. So uh, it, 
it will earn more dollars if there's a lot of inflation. Uh, in real terms, who knows? But but it would it would earn a lot more dollars, and and a lot of the energy projects would. And the, but uh, but it's better if we don't have inflation, and it's better if we don't have capital. <laughs> if we, if we can find the same sort of businesses that aren't as capital intensive, we we've got capital. I mean, it, it, we we're ideally positioned for capital intensive businesses that other people have trouble raising capital for, but they've still got to promise decent returns. All right, this question comes from Charlie Wang. He's a shareholder in San Francisco. He says, given the unprecedented time of the economy and the debt level, could there be any risks and consequences of the U.S. government defaulting on its bonds? No. The, uh, if, you, if you print bonds in your own currency, what happens to the currency is going to be a question. But you don't default. Uh, and uh, the United States uh, has been smart enough, been the, and people have trusted us enough to issue its debt in our, its own currency. And Argentina is now having a problem because the, the debt isn't in the, their own currency. And, and lots of countries have had that problem, and lots of countries will have that problem in the future. It is very painful to owe money in somebody else's currency. But if you, listen, if I could issue a currency, Buffett bucks, and I had a printing press, uh, and I'm, I could borrow money, and I could borrow money on that, I would never default. <laughs> uh, so what you end up getting in terms of purchasing power can be in doubt. But in terms of the U.S. government, I. When Standard & Poor's downgraded the United States government, uh, I think it was Standard & Poor's uh, some years back, that to me uh, did not make sense. I mean, the, in the end, uh, how you can regard any corporation as stronger than the, a person who can print the money to pay you, uh, I just don't understand. Uh, so don't worry about the government defaulting. I think it's kind of crazy, incidentally, this should be said, to have these limits on the debt and all of that sort of thing and then stop the government arguing about whether it's going to increase the limits. We're going to increase the limits on the debt. The debt isn't going to be paid. It's going to be refunded. And anybody that thinks they're going to bring down the national debt, I mean, that, that you know, there's been brief periods and uh, I think it's in the late 90s or thereabouts. Uh, when the debts come down a little bit, the country's going to print more debt. It's going to, and interestingly, the country's going to grow in terms of its its debt paying capacity. And uh, but the trick is to keep borrowing in your own currency. <laughs> Emphasis on the <laughs> trick. Um, this question comes from David Cass. He is a, a clinical professor of finance at the University of Maryland, and he says. Uh, Berkshire has invested in many companies with stock buyback programs. Recently, there's been a backlash against buybacks. What are your views on this subject? Well, it's very politically correct to be against buybacks now. I mean, and, you know, and they're going to incorporate it in the loan program. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of crazy things said on buybacks. Buybacks are so simple. I mean, it, uh, it's a way of distributing cash. 
to shareholders. And let's just say that you and I and Greg, the three of us decide to buy an auto dealership or a McDonald's franchise or something. And we each put a million dollars in, you know, or whatever the number may be. And we get along with each other and the business grows and all of that. And one of us really wants to spend our share of the earnings. Uh, and the other two want to leave the money in the business to grow. Uh, now, if the three of us did that, and we only, we're the only shareholders, we would not establish a 100% dividend payout for everybody, and we wouldn't freeze the one that wanted to get out either. The logical thing to do is to buy a portion, whatever that person wants to spend annually from the earnings, buy a portion of their stock and the other two find their interest in the company goes up and the third person still has a little more of an interest by what they they leave in but they also can take some money out of the business you're taking money out of the business in the in either case and one you call dividends and you send it to everybody whether they want it or not and with buybacks you give it to the ones who want the money and i have been following a policy of giving away stock now since 2006 and I'll give away a lot of stock, but the people, the, the philanthropies that, that receive it, uh, the gifts have to spend the money uh, very promptly within, you know, on a current basis more or less. So they are getting $3 billion worth of stock or whatever it may be. And I'm in effect reducing my interest in Berkshire but I'm still, Berkshire's still retaining more capital than I'm giving away. So, so I have more dollars invested, but my interest goes down. And the people that need the cash to carry out the philanthropic efforts, they cash out the stock. And I don't force, I don't force my sister or whoever it may be to take a bunch of money she doesn't want. She wants it reinvested, all of it reinvested in the business. And people that, that uh, don't want to can sell some of their stock and uh, the company ends up in the same position. We've distributed some of the capital that we don't need for growth. Now, whether the company should buy it depends on a couple of things. One is they ought to retain the money they need for intelligent growth prospects. That's fine. And secondly, and this is a point that's never mentioned, they should be buying it back below what they think it's worth. Now, they'll make mistakes in that, but you make mistakes in a lot of businesses, but over that should be the guiding principle. And to my knowledge, uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon said it once, and we've said it various times, you know, we retain, st we, 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 we will repurchase shares when it's to the advantage of the continuing shareholder to have us do so. But you read about all these buyback programs, they say we're going to spend $5 billion buying it back or $10 billion. Well, that's like saying I'm going to go out and buy some business this year for $5 billion without knowing what you're going to get for the money. It, it, it should be price sensitive, obviously. It should be needs sensitive, obviously. But when the conditions are right, it should also be obvious to repurchase shares. And there shouldn't be the slightest taint to it any more than there is to dividends. And people that have now sort of taken up the cries about how terrible it was that companies bought back stock. Well, you can say it was terrible for them to pay dividends too, then they'd have more money now, but they were doing what was intelligent at the time. And I hope they continue to do what's intelligent as they go forth. 
Greg? No, I, the only thing I know you've commented on in the past, Warren, is that I think the one thing we are seeing, and obviously we're supportive of, of uh, buybacks, but there are companies that used probably their financial engineering was just a little... Uh, extreme. <laughs> extreme and too cute that effectively you're using every ounce of your balance sheet to buy back stock at a time where you're really creating no cushion for your business uh, for any type of event or bump in the road. And I, you know, we're going to see that. And I think that's a very unfortunate outcome of them. And hence you get some of the backlash. But there's still companies, as you highlighted, many that do it right. Yeah. Now, if they're buying it back because it's fashionable, because they really do like the idea. There's nothing wrong with doing taking an action that increases the value of the remaining shares. But if they're doing it very, and, I, and incidentally, I've been witness to some programs where it really is stupid. Uh, but I don't think it's immoral. I just think it's stupid, you know, basically. Uh, and on the other hand, I, we favor companies that take care of all their requirements for growth and as Greg says, maintain sound balance sheets and all of that. Leave a margin of error for things that you can get surprised with. And if they find their stock selling below the, mm. what they, the business is intrinsically worth, uh, I think that they're making a big mistake if they don't buy in their stock. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's gonna be a political football. And like I say, that when, when it becomes politically correct to do something in this country, if you're a politician, the best thing to do is get on board. But but it, Berkshire is going to do what it thinks makes sense for its shareholders. And we and we like investing in companies that think that way too. And not all companies yeah. obviously do. Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Lou Bogart, uh, Lou Bogart in Boca Raton, Florida. He says. I'm a longtime shareholder with a concern as I head into retirement. I understand the theory that splitting shares does nothing for the value of shares. However, with the extremely high price on A shares, when I wish to draw down some money on, on my portfolio in retirement, I'm facing a large tax hit. Say the average price has been about $300,000 this year, and I'm sitting on a $200,000 capital gains liability for each share. If I need $60,000 in additional cash during my retirement, I need to sell a full share and get hit with $200,000 tax liability. If you would split the stock 10 for one, I could sell two $30,000 shares and keep my tax liability at a more manageable 40,000. I could also maintain more of my investment in Berkshire. Um, he said, have you thought about this? In retrospect, I should have bought B shares, but didn't think of well, that at the time. You can convert A to B shares, which is exactly what takes place when I give away the money in July to the five foundations. They, I, I actually convert it uh, immediately before the gift. I mean, it, and so they get B shares. And the truth is the B shares are very useful uh, to people that want to either give away a small portion of what they have or or... or or spend it or whatever it may be. So you can convert the A to B shares, which is exactly what I've been doing now for for 14 years as I give it away and and uh, and solve that problem. And, and we, we uh, split the B shares, as I remember it, at one point, you know, just to make it even more manageable so that people could deal with smaller denominations. The B shares, the A shares have a different voting power, but but we passed some resolution some time ago, I think, and it certainly would be the case in any event. We're never going to give the A shares an advantage over the B. They used to have an advantage in, in a 
shareholder-designated contribution program that we had, and we put that in there when we started, but but that's an, that goes way back in time, and that doesn't exist anymore. So that the B and the A are going to get treated exactly the same over time. It's true the A have more votes, but the and and they sell they they sell very close to parity all the time. So I I would say that uh, if you if you want to do anything in terms of raising cash and you've got a lot of A shares, you know, you take one or two shares of A, and and plenty of people I know have done this and just cash it in it, turn it into B and, and give yourself whatever amount of cash you want to get. This uh, is one that comes from Thomas Lin in Taiwan. He says, Warren once said that banking is a good business if you don't do dumb things on the asset side. Uh, given that the pandemic might put a lot of pressure on the loans, dumb things that got done in the past few years are likely to explode. Through reading annual reports, 10Qs, and other public information, what clues are you looking for to decide whether a bank is run by a true banker who avoids doing well, dumb things? Uh, that's, that's a very good question, but I would say that the one thing that made Chairman Powell's a job a little easier this time than it was in 2008-9 is that the banks are in far better shape. So in terms of thinking about what was good for the economy, he wasn't at the same time worrying about what he was going to do with Bank A or Bank B to uh, merge them with somebody else or put strain, added strains on the system or anything. I mean, the banks, the banks were very involved uh, with the problem in 2008 and 9. They had they had done some things they shouldn't have done in some of them, and and they were certainly in far different financial condition now. So that that. Uh, the banking system is not the problem in this particular show. I mean, the, the government is, we decided as a, as a people to shut down part of the, part of the economy in a big way. And it was not the fault of anyone, uh, th that it happened. Uh, things do happen in this world. Earthquakes happen, you know, it, uh, uh, Huge hurricanes happen. This was something different, but uh, the the banks uh, the banks need regulation. I mean, you know, they benefit from the FDIC, but part of part of having the government standing behind your deposits is is uh, to behave well. And I think that the banks have behaved very well, and I think they're in in very good shape. I mean, it, uh, that's that's how why the FDIC has built up $100 billion that I've talked about. I mean, mm -hmm. they've assessed the banks uh, in recent years at, at, at accelerated amounts in certain periods, and they even differentiated against the big banks. Uh, so they built up great reserves uh, there, and they built their own balance sheets, and they are not presently part of Chairman Powell's problem, whereas they were very much part of Chairman Bernanke's problem back in 2008 and 9. Uh, how you spot the people that are doing the dumb things uh, is not easy because, well, sometimes it's easy, uh, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, I, don't, I don't see a lot that bothers me, but banks are 
in the end, institutions that operate with significant amounts of other people's money. And if problems become severe enough in an economy, even strong banks can be under a lot of stress and we'll be very glad we've got the Federal Reserve System uh, standing behind them. I don't see special problems in the banking industry now. I could think of possibilities, and Jamie Dimon referred to this a little bit in the Morgan, J.P. Morgan report. You can dream of scenarios that puts a lot of strain on banks, and they're not totally impossible, and that's why we have a Fed. Uh, and I think that, I think overall the banking system is not gonna be the problem. But I'm not a, a, I wouldn't say that with 100% certainty because there are certain possibilities that exist in this world where banks could have problems. They're gonna have problems with energy loans. Mm -hmm. They're gonna have problems, some, you know, they're gonna have extra problems with consumer credit. They're gonna have, you know, they're in, but they know it and they're well reserved. Well, they're, 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 they're well capitalized for it. They were reserve building in the first quarter and they may need to build more reserves, but uh, they are not a primary worry of mine at all. We own a lot of banks, or we own a lot of bank stocks. Greg, do you have any thoughts on it? No, I really, uh, you touched on it earlier too, just in general, which is we don't know how long this pandemic will go. We don't know if there's going to be a second event, which are just risks that are really unknown at this time. And the banks will have to continue to manage through that as the uh, businesses do. But you've already uh, highlighted that, obviously. Yeah. Becky. All right. Uh, this question, I was looking for one of these because I got several questions that came in similar to this. I was looking for one of these a moment ago. This one's from Andrew Wenke. He says, can you ask Warren why he didn't purchase, repurchase Berkshire shares in March when they dropped to a price that was 30 percent lower than the price that he had repurchased shares for in January and February? Yeah, I, it was very, very, very short period where they were 30 percent less. But, but uh, we, I don't think Berkshire shares relative to uh, present value are at a significantly different uh, discount than they were when we were paying somewhat higher prices. I mean, it, uh, you know, it's like Kane said or whoever it was, you know, if the facts change, I, I change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? You know, it, it's, uh, so uh, uh, it's, we always think about it, but I don't feel that it's more, far more compelling to buy Berkshire shares now than I would have felt three months or six months or nine months ago. It's always, it's always a possibility, uh, and we'll see what happens. Greg, you've, you think about repurchasing shares? Uh, I mean, generally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh... I, I think our approach warns the right approach. I mean, you're always, I, I can't really add anything other than the, the approach is the right approach. We approach it when we see a, it's the right thing for, for our shareholders to be repurchasing. And that doesn't mean we're repurchasing all the time or, or the view doesn't change. Well, there could be a price relative to value at the time, not relative to what it was worth a year ago. I mean, the value of certain things have decreased our airline position was a mistake. 
Berkshire is worth less today because I took that position than if I hadn't. And there, there are other decisions like that. And uh, they're not, you know, it, it, it is not more compelling to buy the shares now than it was when we were buying them. It's not, it's not less compelling. I mean, it's, it's a wash, but we didn't do anything. We, it's not gotten, it, it, the price has not gotten to a level or not been at a level where it really feels way better to us than other things, including the option value of money uh, to step up in a big, big way. Um, this question comes from three investors in Israel, Lidar Zluf, Yossi Zluf, and Dan Gorfung. They want to know about the credit card industry. It says, how do you explain the rise in the average credit card interest rate in recent years compared to the federal funds rate? What are the forces that you think might keep it at or around current levels, and what are the forces that might drive it lower in the future? Well, I, that, is, that is not a subject that I'm, you know, obviously it, it affects American Express to some degree. It affects the banks we own, but, but, but interest rates on credit cards respond to competition, obviously, to uh, loss potential, which obviously has gone up significantly in the last few months, although it's gone down perhaps from some other periods you can pick in the past. But I don't really have much I can bring to the party on that question. I, it, uh, we are not in the, well, that isn't true. Uh, our, our furniture companies, uh, a couple of them have their own credit card, although they do a lot of business on other people's credit cards. My general advice to people, I mean, uh, you know, we, we have an interest in, in credit cards, but, but people, uh, I, I don't, I think people should, should avoid using credit cards as a, you know, as, as a piggy bank to be raided. I, I had a woman come to see me here not long ago and she'd come on a, some money and, uh, uh, not not very much, but it was a lot to her. And uh, she's a friend of mine. And she uh, she said, "What should I do with it?" You know, and and I said, "Well, what do you owe your credit card?" And uh, uh, she says, "Well, I own X." And uh, uh, I said, "Well, what you should do? I, I I don't know what interest rate she was paying, but I think you know. Maybe, I think I asked her, and she knew, and she, it was something like eighteen percent or something. I said, "I don't know how to make eighteen percent." You know, I mean. Uh, if I, if I owed any money at 18%, the first thing I'd do with any any money I had would be to pay it off. It's gonna be way better than any investment idea I've got. And that wasn't what she wanted to hear. Uh, and then later on in the conversation, she talked about her daughter, and her daughter had a $1,000 or $2,000 or something, and, and she said, well, what should I do with, and she named the girls, uh, money. and. I said, have her lend it to you, you know, and, and, and I mean, if you're willing to pay 18% or whatever, I mean, she's not going to find a better deal. I'll lend you money. It, 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 it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You, you can't go through life, uh, you know, borrowing money at, at, at those rates and, and be better off the thing. So I, I encourage everybody, it's, it's contrary to my own, or Berkshire's, interests in certain cases, but, and the world is, 
is in love with credit cards, but but I uh, would suggest to anybody that the first thing they do in life is is not on. You know, they, they can get to something else later on, but but don't be paying don't be paying even 12% to anybody. I mean, it's uh, uh, pay that off, and then and uh, uh, and if they're really a good credit and they don't want to do it, come and see me personally. I'll lend you the money at <laughs> that rate. <laughs> Greg, what do you tell your children? <laughs> no, same advice, excellent <laughs> advice. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I have three that uh, uh, carefully use their credit card. Uh, more, I would say, for uh, not not the uh, obviously people use it a lot more as they go into the digital world and and e-commerce world. But then the goal has to be to repay it. It doesn't mean you. Um, because you have to use it for those type of transactions, you you run up the balance. But th th there's an incremental risk there now. It's a matter of convenience for yeah. some people. Yeah. But but uh, I would I, I would have trouble uh, if if I were paying 12% for money or whatever it might be. Uh, it would not be a good thing. <laughs> you won't see Berkshire paying that. <laughs> Back. Uh, Warren, this question is from Lindsay Schumacher. She, well, oh, did you have something I, we, you were saying? We probably ought to wind this up maybe in 15 minutes. Can, can you select the best ones? <laughs> okay, absolutely. Yeah, well, we, I've got sure. a couple uh, more questions uh, for you. This one's from Lindsay Schumacher. She, she's, she says, Warren, is, what's your opinion regarding the payroll protection plan? Well, I, I don't want to get into politics generally, but I, I think that's a very good idea to take, par take care of the people that are having terrible troubles taking care of themselves in a period like this. I mean, if the government and surrounding conditions and whatever it may be, if you're, if you're telling a lot of, of businesses essentially, you know, quit doing business for a long time. And uh, it's one thing to tell me, but, but to tell somebody that's living from paycheck to paycheck that way uh and i'm 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 all for it it, it must be hell to administer i mean it, you know the any huge problem i don't i don't want to i'll never get into criticizing on how people do this or that because i've had problems myself in running a few big things uh, it it just isn't that easy to inaugurate incredibly large problems there's going to be a certain amount of fraud there's going to be a, a you know, everything doesn't go perfectly, but I am 100% uh, for taking care of the people that that uh, really get hurt by something that they've got nothing to do with and it, uh, and where it's, you know, who knows, who knows how long it lasts. It's, you've got millions and millions of people that are worrying about something that they weren't worried about a few months ago, and they didn't do anything. They showed up for work on time, and they, they pleased the people they dealt with, and whatever it may have been. And now they don't have a job, and uh, uh, or they've been furloughed, or whatever. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally for the basic idea, and I think it's very difficult. Well, you can't carry it out perfectly. You do your best, and you do it promptly. And I, I give, uh, I, I, I give real credit, you know, to both Congress for acting 
promptly on what the problem is. They've, they've sort of caught on from what they learned in 2008 and 2009, I think. Uh, and I give credit uh, to trying to do what I think is very much the right thing, and I don't sit around and think about how I could do it better. Greg? No, I, I agree with the comments. Uh, Warren, this question comes from Bill Murray, the actor, who's also a shareholder in Berkshire. He says this pandemic will graduate a new class of war veterans, healthcare, food supply, deliveries, community services. So many owe so much to these few. How might this great country take our turn and care for all of them? Well, uh, we won't be able to pay, actually. Uh, you know, it's like people that landed in Normandy or something. I mean, the, the poor, the disadvantaged, they suffer. You know, there's an unimaginable suffering, and at the same time, they're doing all these things that, you know, that working 24-hour days, and, and we don't even know their names. Uh, you know, so we ought to do a if we go overboard on something, we ought to do things that can help those people. And this country, I've said it a lot of times before, but the history of it, I mean, we are a rich, rich, rich country. And uh, uh, the people that are doing the kind of work that Bill talks about, uh, you know, they are, they're contributing a whole lot more than some of the people that came out of the right womb, you know, or got lucky in things, or know how to arbitrage bonds, or whatever it may be. And I'm, you know, in a large part, I'm one of those guys. Uh, so you, you really try to create a society that under normal conditions with more than $60,000 of GDP per capita that anybody that works 40 hours a week uh, can have a decent life without a second job and with a couple of kids and have, you know, they can't live like kings, I don't mean that, but that nobody should be left behind. It's like a rich family, you know, you find rich families and if they have five heirs or six heirs, you know, they try and pick maybe the most able one to run the business, and but they don't, they don't forget about you know, the, the, the kid that actually may be a better citizen in some ways even than the one that does the best at business, but it just doesn't happen, happen to have market value skills. So I, I, uh, I do not think that a very rich company ought to totally abide by, uh, totally abide by what the market dishes out, you know, in 18th century style or something of the sort. So uh, I'm... I, I welcome ideas that go in that direction. I, we've gone in that direction. You know, we did come up with Social Security in the in the in the 30s. We we've made some progress, but but we ought to. I mean, it, uh, uh, it, we have become very 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 rich as a country, and uh, we've been things have improved for for the bottom 20 percent. I mean, uh, you can see st various statistics on that, but they. I'd rather be in the, I'd rather be in the bottom 20% now than be in the bottom 20% 100 years ago or 50 years ago. But, but it's what's really improved is the top one percent, and 
uh, I hope we as a country move in a direction where people build talking about get treated better and it isn't going to hurt it isn't going to hurt the country's growth and, and uh, uh, it's overdue but a lot of things are overdue we are we I will still so say we're a better society than we were 100 years ago, but you would think with our prosperity we could, we would hold ourselves to a, even higher standards of taking care of our fellow man, particularly when you see a situation like you've got today where it's the people that, whose names you don't know that are watching the people come in and watching the bodies go out. Greg? Yeah, I uh, yeah the 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 only other group that I would highlight, and I think it's it'll be very interesting how it plays out is uh, with the number of homeschooling and the children that are home. I think there's a uh, we've always had so much respect for our teachers, but we all talk about how we don't take care of them, and uh, you know it is remarkable to hear how many people comment that clearly we don't recognize or you know I have a little eight year old Beckett at home and you know plenty of challenges for mom but all of a sudden you respect the institution the school the teachers and everything around it so there's and then when i think of our companies and the delivery employees we have it's absolutely amazing what they're doing and and they're truly on the front line you know that's where we have our our challenges around keeping them health and safety and then you go all the way to the rail uh the best videos you see out of our companies are when we have folks that are actively engaged in moving supplies food medical products and and they're so proud of it and they recognize they're making a difference so a lot of it is uh we just owe them a great thanks and you know warren you touched on it we can some way maybe hopefully longer term compensate them but there's a a great deal of thanks and i probably just think an immense amount new uh uh appreciation for a variety of folks <laughs> we're going the right direction all yeah. around the country but it's yeah. been awfully slow Um, gentlemen, I'll make this the last question. It comes from Phil King. He says, many people in the press and politics are questioning the validity of capitalism. What can you say to them that might prompt them to take a look at capitalism more favorably? Well, the market system works wonders, and it's also brutal if left entirely to itself. And we wouldn't be the country we are if the market system hadn't been allowed to function. And to some extent, you can say that other countries around the world that have improved their way of life dramatically, to some extent, have, have, have copied us. So the, the, the market system is marvelous uh, in many respects, but it needs government. And uh, it, it uh, you know, it is creative destruction, but for the ones who are destroyed, it can be it can be a very brutal game, and and for the people who work in the industries and all of that sort of thing. So I, I, I do not want to come up with anything different than capitalism, but I certainly do not want unfettered capitalism, and and uh, uh, it's I don't think we'll move away from it, but I. I think we capitalists, I'm one of them, you know, I think there's a lot of thought that should be given to what would happen if we all drew straws 
again, for particular market-based skills. Uh, you know, it's somebody, somewhere way back, somebody invented television. I don't know who it was. And, and, and then they invented cable. Then they invented pay systems and all of that. And so a fellow that could bat 406 in 1941 was worth $20,000 a year and now a marginal a big leaguer, you know, will make vastly greater sums because in effect the stadium size was increased from 30 or 40 or 50,000 people to the country and the market system capitalism took over and it's very uneven and incidentally I think that Ted Williams is worth a whole lot more money than I've ever uh, should make. Uh, but the, the market system can work toward a winner-takes-all type situation, and uh, we don't want to discourage people from working hard and thinking hard. But that alone doesn't do it. There's a, there is a a lot of randomness in the capitalist system, including inherited wealth. And uh, I think we can, I think we can keep the best parts of a market system and capitalism, and we can do a better job of making sure that everybody participates in the prosperity that that produces. Greg? Yeah. No, I, I think it's always keeping the best parts of it. And I even think if, if we look at the current environment we're in, uh, i.e. in the pandemic, and we have to do it only when we can do it properly and, and, and reemerge. But in some ways, the best opportunity for people is when we're back working clearly and that the system's functioning again. But that, that, that's, that's the obvious. And then there's, as Warren, you've highlighted, there's, you know, there's a lot of imperfections, but it's still, uh, uh, it's definitely the best model out there uh, that just needs some fine-tuning. And Becky, at the end, I would just, yeah, yeah. Warren, I, I would I, just say that, you know. I, oh, sure, can go I ahead. Just, can, I, can I just sure. slip in one more quick Absolutely. question? I forgot this one. Someone sent it in earlier. Thanks. Anderson Haxton wrote in. He said, Warren mentioned that Ben Graham is one of the three smartest people he's ever met. I'd like to ask him the names of the other two. <laughs> well, I, I may not be one of the smartest, but I'm smart enough not to name the other two. I'd make two people happy. But... but I would, it isn't, a, Ben Graham is one of the three smartest people, and I, I've known some really smart people. Uh, uh, smartness is not necessarily, um, uh, does not necessarily equate to wisdom uh, either. And Ben Graham, one of the things he said he liked to do every day was he wanted to do something creative, something generous, and something foolish. And... Uh, he said he was pretty good at the latter, <laughs> but he was pretty good. He was amazing, actually, at the creating. But, but uh, it's it's interesting that IQ does not always translate into rationality and and uh, behavioral success or wisdom. And so, I uh, I know some people that are extraordinarily wise that would not be in the top three on an IQ test. But if I wanted their judgment on some matter, uh, 
even if I want to put them in a position of responsibility someplace, I might prefer them to, to we'll say one of the three. That'll leave the other two feeling fine <laughs> of the three. <laughs> Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> nope. I, I, I agree with uh, the person you named. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's... And Becky, I would, I would just, I, I would just say again uh, that uh, we may have, I hope we don't, but we, we may get some unpleasant surprises. And, and, and um, we are dealing with a virus that that uh, that that spreads its wings in a certain way, you know, in very un, unpredictable ways. And how the how the how the how Americans react to it, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities, but I definitely come to the conclusion after weighing all that sort of stuff, never bet against America. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate okay. your time tonight. And we'll see you next year and we'll have we'll fill this place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night. Good night everybody. Now